Welcome to the RAB Poetry Podcast, where we bring you the stories behind the words, where every poem has a story behind it. Our podcast is a journey through the hearts and minds of poets as we delve into the inspirations, struggles, and triumphs that fuel their work. In each episode, we'll feature a poem, sharing the underlying stories and reciting the most powerful and moving pieces. From various poems on wide variety of topics and rising poets and authors, our podcast is the perfect companion for anyone who loves poetry and the power of words. Whether you're a seasoned poetry enthusiast or just getting started, you'll find something to love on the RAB Poetry Podcast. So tune in and let the stories of our poets take you on a journey of inspiration and emotion. Listen to the REB Poetry Podcast, available on all major platforms now. Why, hello everyone. Welcome back to the uh, Fandom Power Sunday Night Livestream. It is uh, Fandor, that little show that we've been doing for the last, uh, what? Ten weeks? I don't know how long it's been. Nine uh, weeks? We've got three episodes at once. That's true. It is episode nine this week. Again, uh, my name is Wes R. Scott. I am your host. We are reunited this week. The missing Woo-hoo. man has been found. Hank, welcome back. Here I am. <laughs> I, I work so much. It's nutty. It's nutty. But it allows um, me to afford things like awesome computers. Excellent. Yes, um, once again, everybody, I just want to say thank you. Thanks for choosing us. Whether you've been with us uh, from the beginning or you're a newcomer, thanks for choosing us as your source of entertainment. We'd love doing this uh, as self-satisfying or self-serving as it is. We do this um, because we love it, and we hope you do as well. Um, just remember. Keep those comments uh, coming, whether you're watching right now during the live stream or you're catching us in the replay. Drop us a comment on whatever platform you happen to be watching on. If you're listening to one of the audio versions of our uh, podcast, you can always message us uh, through our social media uh, channels. We are on everything, whether it's Facebook, uh, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find us under the uh, Fandom Power podcast there. You can also email the show at, uh, at fandompower 3 at uh, gmail.com and we love those comments because as i've said before they can and they have influenced the direction of the show and if you want to have an even bigger impact on the direction of the show please check out our patreon there's a couple levels there for you to choose from um, where you can have a direct say in the show and you can appear on the show with us I don't know if that's a I don't know if that's a selling point or not. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> more heads. All right, it's Sunday night, guys, and I know I've said this before that our our breakdowns. Last week I said our beatdowns. <laughs> <laughs> In some way, that's probably true as well. Our breakdowns are not the same as all those other guys because, as I've said. They are beat for beat. They are note for note. We hit all of the plot points, all of the Easter eggs, and all of the greater Star Wars lore connections that we can find between the three uh, bearded heads in the room. Nice. <laughs> Listen, Sunday night, by now you think, I've seen it all. I've heard it all. Why would I want to listen to you guys? Why would I want to watch you guys? Listen, I I do encourage you, please stick around, because like I said, we are slightly different than those other guys. And I think 
you might be surprised by what comes out that you may have missed. All right, guys, we've started a new feature on the show. We've run it a couple of weeks now, and uh, I think it's going to be our regular thing. I think so. It's that time in the show where we do our bad Star Wars jokes. Blanket. This week, our bad Star Wars joke comes from Hank. Hank, what do you got for us? Oh, is it the... Uh, we saved it. We didn't use it. Excellent. We, we, uh, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. All yours, uh, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the internal temperature of a tauntaun? I, I don't know. What is the internal temperature of a uh, tauntaun? It is lukewarm. Oh! <laughs> you know what one. uh it never gets old never gets old that one <laughs> that could be skewed by the lightsaber heating up things in there could be could be skewing the temperature a little folks if you have a bad star wars joke we want to hear it send us a comment send us a message we want your bad star wars jokes the good ones will get used on the show and uh yeah um this has been bad star wars jokes all right, guys, with all of that out of the way, let's just check in here on the uh, on the yeah, chat for a second. We got a we got a hey, gang from our mysterious Facebook user. I know we have a few of you that like to stay anonymous, so uh, I'm looking at all of you who you are um, mm -hmm. and hopefully I'm looking at the right person. <laughs> <laughs> a whole bunch of Guy Fox masks. <laughs> We've got the Go Figure YouTube channel. Now, that's nice. a friend of the show. That's Adam Hodgson's over uh, not too far away from where we are, Andy. Actually, nice. um, uh, Oh, my gosh. What's the name of that town? Sutton over in the Sutton. Oh, the Sutton oh, cool. area. Sutton, cool. Ontario. Yeah. Um, awesome action figure customizer. Um, likes all of the nerd stuff that we like. Adam, nice to have you along. Thanks for joining us. Oh, and he awesome. got the joke, lukewarm. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, all right, this week's episode, it's called Nobody's Listening. And uh, as we always do, I want to begin by going sort of around the room and getting everybody's initial thoughts uh, on the episode. Um, man. I got a lot to say on this one. Maybe I better yeah, go yeah. first and get it out of the way. Do it. Do it. Um, so first off, I just want to say I've been saying for weeks now that that Vel has a familial uh, connection to to Luthen. Um, half right on that one. There is a familial a familial connection. It's not Luthen, and uh, never in a million years did I expect it to be Ron Mothma. Yeah, no, I really did. I, I thought that, that was, was a great. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was a complete uh, intentional misdirect, and I completely fell for it. <laughs> I mean, at some point, we've watched so much Star Wars that, like, what can possibly surprise us, right? So it's nice, it's refreshing when something just comes out of the blue like that, left field, yeah. if you will. I agree. Um, guys, a couple of weeks ago, remember when I said um, uh, that I've never rooted for the Empire before, but oh. I was behind Dedra? Mm. <laughs> I take that all back. <laughs> I take it all back. She is so evil. Oh my God. Did she ever turn this one? Uh, absolutely. She did. I, I will I, say this though. Oh, go ahead, Hank. Oh, I was just thinking like, uh, and I think I said this in the chat, if there was any of those fan theories or like, uh, I don't know. They're not weirdos. I won't call the people weirdos. <laughs> I love them all. <laughs> but these, these sort of uh, the idea that the emperor or the empire were the good guys. Yeah, that, you know, I mean, there are there are ways that the Jedi could be mis, you know, construed uh, their their ethics, their more the morality and stuff. But I believe that we strongly now we have 
all shadow of a doubt has been removed from the fact that the empire is pure evil. There is, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I think we've no rem- shadow of a doubt. We've removed all doubt. We really, I mean, we started to get a, a like sort of a small taste and some hints of of what that was going to look like in the Bad Batch, where we st- we saw sort of the the I won't say the radicalization, but we did see like the introduction of of chain codes. We saw what the reaction was like on a former separatist controlled world versus a republic controlled world. Right. And those those lines, I actually made a note this week. I'm actually surprised. Uh, it came up last week as well um, with Saw Guerrero's conversation with Luthen that Saw Guerrero still is of the mindset these many years later, republic versus confederacy. I can't believe that that's still a thing. Yeah, you know, north, yeah. north and south. I guess. Right, right. Specifically about Dedra, I will say this: it is a testament of how well that her uh, her character has been written. Oh, um, yeah. I saw an interview, uh, or uh, rather, I read an interview uh, from Tony Gilroy earlier this week um, about when they initially wrote for that character. They wrote her intentionally. We made a point: she was the diversity hire. She was the woman in a man's world. And if you've been following sort of the, the media rounds with, um, with, uh, oh my gosh, Tony Gilroy. No, Denise Goff. I uh, believe that's her yeah, name. Goff. Yeah. Goff. And she's been talking about that. Um, the other, the, the flip side of that is she's now established herself. So, I mean, we've, that's the whole, they wrote her sympathetic intentionally and I fell for it, but now yes. Now that she's proven herself to be a capable woman in a man's world, well, now she's nothing but a fascist in a fascist world. So just like having <laughs> to prove herself in a man's world, now she's got to be the biggest, baddest fascist of them all. Right. And right. she is well on the way to doing that. I think I said it in the last uh, last show that I was on. It's, it's hard to top uh, a giant... Uh, like you know, seven foot tall man in a skull shaped breath mask, right? Uh, who can choke you at a distance, even across starships? That's right. Who wields a, a a sword that can cut through anything? It's harder to get scarier than that. This is realer. It's that's that's. I would rather like uh, the you know face Vader in an alley. It'd be over quick. <laughs> yeah, I do not yeah, want to yeah. be tortured by Daedra. <laughs> Talking about uh, scary. Uh, can we just talk for just a quick second? Just very lightly. Cyril Karn and the creep factor. Yeah. <laughs> Exponentially increasing. Wow. Um, that was uh, probably the most uncomfortable I've been watching anything in Star Wars ever. Yeah. And I uh, I feel the same way. They, we, we were leaning towards sympathetic character, uh, at least sympathetic views of the character. I yeah. Mean, we, we knew he was a bit of a, sort of by the books dirtbag in the beginning but we and then you know that watching him interact with his mother and be like just downtrodden and yeah and yeah. and, and uh, ridiculed constantly you feel like oh man uh if anybody's ever had that experience with a parent even for five seconds you you sympathize and uh they do a good job of going oh <laughs> just pulling that rug right out from under you <laughs> oh whoa, super creep the last episode didn't really give us a whole lot in terms of uh, the title. Uh, we like to analyze the title sort of thematically, metaphorically, and there wasn't a whole lot of room in uh, Narkina 5 to, to do that. 
this week it's nobody's listening. Did you guys mm-hmm. take a take sort of the did you put the metaphor lens on and kind of look at the title this week and kind of yeah, think about back, what's going on? It, it certainly it harkens back to the first uh, and or trailer. It might have even been the yeah. teaser or the special look that we had like months ago where he basically said to, to Luthen, uh, they're so fat and satisfied. The fact like walking in their house and spitting yeah, their food spitting in their and food, stealing yeah. their things doesn't even occur to them. And that's exactly what this title is is about nobody's listening the empire doesn't care uh even after you know a, a portion of the empire certainly is starting to investigate and perhaps the uh headphones are going to come on uh, if yeah. you will but uh yeah it, it, we're back to those like nuanced meanings those double meanings especially like yeah uh, uh in the prison itself nobody's nobody's listening to you you're you're a little tiny tiny cog in a machine and even if they could hear you what are you gonna do i found it funny as i was watching the episode this week and i sort of kept that in the back of the, uh, the back of my head as i was watching it but it's like every time not every time but like three times at least three times cassian goes to to talk to kino about tell me what you know and it's like mm. every time they start talking uh the the buzzer brr, on program like mm-hmm. somebody clearly is listening mm-hmm. <laughs> so superficially i found that kind of funny because it's like mm-hmm. well who's who is it that's not listening and what is it they're not listening for because somebody is definitely listening all right uh any more you want to you want to add something andy uh yeah I, I definitely believe someone is listening yeah i do too uh, especially given that the credit for the voice in the sky right. is the voice of god yeah did you get that last and- week hank no, no. So the, no. the, the computer voice, the electronic voice. And I, I, last week I talked about this where I, I likened it to remember the, the Intron legacy when they lined everybody up and that like game grid rectify, yeah. it's like the same kind of electronic tone. That voice in the credits is actually credited as the voice of God. Oh, crazy. Yeah. And if there's yeah, a yeah. voice of God, God is always, God listening. is always listening. Yeah. So, isn't that something? Right? Yeah interesting all right well listen uh it is Andor episode nine and it is called nobody's listening this one uh aired on wednesday november 2nd in the year 2022 it is written by bo williman who was the writer of last week's episode also uh, directed by toby haynes uh it has an advertised runtime of 50 minutes or if you're like me and you skip through all the credits and titles you get a much trimmer 40 minutes and 33 seconds by the way, uh, this is the most exposition-laden episode, yet we have a mm. record low number of slides this week. Mm. Um, almost half of what we would normally have. Fucking the trend, too, of the episodes getting so slightly weird. longer. Slightly yeah, longer. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, uh, Adam says, uh, nice Tron Legacy poll. Underrated movie. I love Tron Legacy. <laughs> if we're going to talk about the House of the Mouse, uh, fingers yeah. crossed, I, I'm still uh, hoping that we'll get a third one. I would love to see another one. Everyone needs a trilogy. Uh, I, I don't even care that, about the trilogy. I just, I'm so invested in that world. Um, and I love that movie so much. I was just wanted to see more of it. Okay. Let's move on here. Where are we at? Um, okay. The episode opens and it's uh, back at the hotel on Ferrix. Now Bix is seated in that same chair that we saw her forced into at the end of the last episode while uh, Dedra paces around her. 
Now, Dedra remarks uh, that she doesn't like wasting time. And uh, she makes a fishing analogy that when you pull the net in, you assume that everything in it is fish. She adds that she has colleagues that believe uh, in that fishing analogy and that it is the prudent way to defend the empire. But she, on the other hand, has a more nuanced view. Now, she proposes... I won't lie to you about what I know, and that's in hopes that Bix will cooperate without the need for any other form of intervention. But if that doesn't work, then she has Dr. Gorst, who we were introduced to last week, uh, who has developed a uh, unique way to interview a subject, a technique that Dedra says is very exciting to some of her <laughs> colleagues. <laughs> exciting i'm going to talk about that in a minute because uh, that's also exceptionally morose and scary mm. in leveling with bix dedra tells her that they brought in salmon pack uh, after they tracked the signal from the hidden pirate radio to the yard of his shop it turns out that the series nine spectrum surveillance that she requested uh, in the last episode has paid off Dedra had hoped that uh, Pack would cooperate, seeing as he had very little rebel activity on his resume. But it turns out that he was less than forthcoming. And because of that, uh, Dedra believed that there was far more to be learned, and she interrogated him nonstop into the next morning. And uh, that uh, led her to the point, uh, as Dedra puts it, of wasting time. She calls it a poor decision on his part, because in the end, they still learned everything they wanted to know, and what he uh, did know, she says, wasn't worth the price that he paid for it. Um, yeah. And again, it's just a quick note about how much I lost sympathy for her in the first, in the first, what, two minutes of the show. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, my God, absolutely. you're an evil woman. And then something else to point in the two first two minutes, they're listening already. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, yep. We're yeah, listening. Yeah. Well, again, that spectrum surveillance thing we talked about last week, there was yeah. no, there was no hard Star Wars reference for that, yeah. but there was a real world reference on what spectrum surveillance really is. Mm -hmm. And it's this like multi-band uh, surveillance. And clearly that's what they were doing. Yeah, <laughs> We're going to get another one of those real world uh, examples in this week's episode too. I'll, and I'll talk about that when it comes up. Now, uh, Dedra recounts that uh, Salmon Pack attended a separatist meeting two years ago on the planet uh, Jundora. That's a new name this week, by the way. Um, again, this episode is laden with new names that are, are turning up for the first time in Star Wars. It's true. The Galactic Empire was formed. This is interesting because, uh, as I said before, the, the Galactic Empire was formed in uh, 19 BBY. And here we are 12 years later at 7 BBY. And people are still making that distinction between Confederacy and the Republic including an agent of the empire mm -hmm. at that meeting, uh, pack met a woman that told him that if he was serious about politics, he might want to act as a liaison for Ferrix when he got home. Um, are we calling that Mon Mothma? Maybe. Ooh, Vel strong uh, possibilities. Fell sort of more of a, the field. field agent. Yeah, yeah, sort of, okay. yeah. 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 Could even be, uh, Cleo Cleocinta. No, on her uh Clea. yeah sorry Clea. oh that's an interesting thought too we're still not 100 on where she fits into the, the grand scheme i think she's up there 
I think that maybe that Luthan might actually be the number two in that operation, not the number. I mean, he's the front, the public front of the gallery. She might be the the, The puppet master. Yeah. 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 Hopefully that'll play out and we'll see that. All right. Where are we here? Um, So yeah, according to uh, Dedra, he was sent the fractal radio unit that Bix used uh, the afternoon before. That's our second, uh, our, our latest real world um, uh, reference. Um, the takeaway about it being that a fra- fractal, fractal antennas uh, differ from traditional antennas because fractal antennas are capable of operating on several different frequencies at the same time. Whereas uh, normally antennas only work at one frequency. So that's the advantage of the, uh, the pirate radio that they had. It was a fractal radio. Well, Dedra says that uh, the woman Pac met, uh, met with was less interested in generating political activity on Ferrix than she was in utilizing what she calls uh, the planet's unique commercial position to acquire stolen Imperial equipment. The commercial position being that it's a, Scrapping, scrap world, uh, ship breaking world. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Dedra asks if Bix knew that Pac was paid to keep that radio active and that Bix was the only one to ever use it. Mm. Well, with an incredible poker face, Bix just stares at her quite stoically and doesn't say anything. Continuing, Dedra retorts that Pac only ever met once with the man uh, she knows as the buyer before he was turned over to her with a sinister smile. Dedra steps closer and leans over Bix, remarking that she is now in her net and asks, are you a fish or a thief? Dedra remarks that it's a, it's a terrible spot for Bix to be in considering that she's a business owner and has no record of stirring up any political trouble. Well, stepping back from uh, Bix, Dedra says she would prefer to have a conversation than to put Dr. Gorst back to work but it is entirely up to her while Bix breaks her silence um, and and questions Dedra if she's with the ISB. It's more a matter of fact than an actual question because she calls Dedra the worst of the worst. And it's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) With a smile on her face, Dedra strolls around the chair telling Bix, you're going to tell me everything you know about the buyer. When Bix remarks that Dedra seems to be enjoying this interaction, the sector supervisor tells her that she's also going to tell her everything about Cassian Andor and the relationship that he has with the buyer. Well, Bix says uh, they actually don't have a relationship. And uh, Dedra steps in front of her and uh, leaning in again. Uh, This time, the look on her face is very sinister as she tells Bix that uh, she's going to provide a detailed account of every piece of stolen Imperial gear that she's passed along where it came from who was bribed along the way and where it has gone. Um, which apparently she, she does because that's going to come back later on in the episode. Yeah, absolutely. With a smirk, Bix shakes her head as she says, I don't know the buyer, but her countenance belies her confidence when Dedra informs her how Pac told her that, well, um, you had at least six face-to-face meetings with him and, uh, you spent hours at a time on the radio Bix offers that. Hey, listen, I, sometimes I would signal and sometimes he would answer and he'd come to the, to, to Ferrex. He'd buy whatever it was that she had. And then he would leave again. Well, Dedra turns up the pressure 
and she repeats herself six face-to-face meetings and then mentions how the buyer and Cassian together blew up a building and killed security officers. While Bix was injured trying to warn them while her co-worker, and by the way, boyfriend slash hookup, um, was mm-hmm. also killed when he tried to intervene when Bix was detained. Bye, Tim. <laughs> then Dedra points out that both Cassian and the buyer got away clean and added all up. That looks like a whole nest of relationships. Standing in front of Bix, just a few steps away, Dedra grins as she asks, when was the last time you saw Cassian Andor? Bix glares at her and turns her head away without answering. Then Dedra leans in almost nose to nose with Bix and whispers a very clear warning. The very worst thing you can do right now is bore me. Bix shakes her head as she asks, you're not going to believe me, are you? And Dedra, smiling sadistically, answers, no, I suppose not. Turning to leave, Dedra tells Dr. Gorst, she's all yours. She's a little face twitch in that scene. Oh, my it's God. Insane, the, uh, leak. I don't know if it was her uh, you know, intensity that made it flicker or if she intentionally did the little cheek twitch. But it was There's it a was couple brilliant. times. The, the way the smile crawls across her, it's like the Grinch, eh? <laughs> From Christmas. Very much just, so. Oh, like the, man, the it curl. just crawls across her face. There's yeah, a couple scary, times throughout the episode lady. where there's a lot of um, uh, emotion that's conveyed physically. And I mean, there's only so many images that I can, I can put together on a slide, but man, it's like it, my working slides. I must've had like, for some of them, I probably had 20 or 25 images on screen, trying to pare that down to like just a handful that captures the essence of, of the moment. But like, you're right there's so much going on just like in the facial expression that yeah oh well for her to be so uh overtly evil but yeah her performance uh physically to be so nuanced yeah you know what i mean uh, yeah fantastic oh well uh turning to leave dedra tells gorst she's all yours gorst thanks her and when the door slides open, Dedra Miro strides out of the makeshift interrogation room while two Imperial troops rush in and strap Bix down to the chair. Um, right. And I just made a note here. It says now that Dedra has supplanted Blevin as the supervisor for the Morlana sector, she's made it in terms of a woman in a man's world. And now she can live up to being the fascist that she's always been, Mm -hmm. which just happens to be a side of her that we've just not been privy to before now. Yeah. But uh, as you say, like seeing that come out of her, that's a, that's a side of her that's always been there. Yeah. But just kept hidden. Well, hidden from us, the audience, certainly not hidden probably in the course of her duties. Well, yes and no. Cause like new legislation. Well, She's definitely not stepping on toes if she doesn't have the evidence, right? No, I sp- like, not anymore. She, she's definitely got a poker face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, back on Narkina 5. Cassian and the men of Table 5 work seamlessly. Sorry, Table 5? That's his table, right? Table yeah, five. yeah, Table 5. Why did I think 6 for a second? Mm-hmm. There's been so much with numbers in the last couple of episodes that it just keeps... I've got some more math this week. <laughs> We almost need that Simpsons quote, table five, uh, table five. 
Table five. Cassian and the men of table five work seamlessly as they assemble another one of the mystery six prong spoke components. Cassian takes a look around the room and he notes that table three won't be shorthanded all day because there's a new man coming down, but they can take the shift if they push. Um, I'm just going to, I saw that thing with uh, um, Andy Circus. Andy Circus this week. There was a, a short interview I saw with him. Andy Circus said that no. The men of the factories on Narkina 5 do not know what they are putting together. Right. That makes he, sense. He also said that he himself, Andy Circus, the actor, does know what they are assembling. And he said that fans who know their stuff should be able to figure it out. He's hmm. just saying that. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see, uh, see how that going. plays out. Well, so him saying that too, though, right? leans heavy into the compartmentalization of it so not all rooms and floors might be making the same thing no that's true and that that is something that we talked about before too like to they're, factor in, yeah. they're making well they're making whatever these things are for at least 30 days yeah um so this yeah, one makes I, these i don't think that the contest would be kind of it would be skewed if the parts were different so they couldn't control yeah. that yeah yeah, yeah. i mean that could be an internal game it's compartmentalized though room to room right, right. so I mean, the, the stakes are the same, even if the component is different. Yeah. yeah, whoever, whichever table wins the day kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Well, looking at his display, Jembok remarks that uh, they're already up on table four, while Taiga adds that uh, he could use a proper meal. Zol calls table two a threat, while poor Olaf groans in pain as he massages his hand. The men know that he isn't well, but they ask him if he's up for the win. He says he'll need some help. Then Cassian tells Taga to switch with him because he's faster at the task that uh, he's currently doing. Seeing the men change positions, Kino Loy comes over to ask what's going on. And uh, Jembok calls it just a little rebalancing. Seeing Olaf still massaging his hand, Kino asks him how many shifts he has left. Olaf tells him that it will be 41 shifts as of tomorrow. And for the very briefest of moments, Kino lets a smile creep up on his face as he announces that that makes Olaf the next man out. Kino's got a soft spot for Olaf, and I don't necessarily think it's just because he's the oldest guy there. Hmm. But I'm going to hang on to that. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later because he I think... He uses a military term, too, the shortest of the short. The shortest of the short. Another thing too, he says, "How many shifts do you have left?" Yeah, well, they. I, previously, he had said, "I have two hundred and forty-nine days." Days, left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, so again, is that counter for shifts or for days? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Tough to say. Well, they do say in the first, uh, in the the first Narkina episode that um, the shifts are twelve-hour shifts. So, you know, if if we are going with the twenty-four-hour clock or three hundred sixty-five. Yeah your day i you know that's all gray but it's, right. i think it i think it illustrates that half your day is spent working half your day is spent waiting to work um and so there, the reality too I, that i thought about it this week too is that they're hot racking it so that means you know th this is five two d for day shift and every time they're in the bridge right. they're passing five two n the night shift right they're exactly. hot racking i mean those they're two to a, a cell essentially they're just never there at the same time yeah that's right yeah uh interestingly enough 49 men per shift plus the supervisor makes 50 men on the floor at one time mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, 20, uh, 50 does not break into, uh, uh, does not break down evenly for a number of rooms on each side of the hallway. Mm. Right. When you go 25 and 25 and there's two, two layers, it's not like 12 and a half, like one side of the hallway has got to have an extra bunk, but we don't see that. And that's just the minutia crap that I like to go. Hey, <laughs> anyway, but that's for another time. All right. Turning his attention to Cassian, Kino asks if the swap was his idea, but Cassian, interestingly enough, he gives the credit to Taga, which catches Taga off guard. And he raises his eyebrows and says, are you kidding? Like what? Like me? Kino calls it a wise move as Olaf will be going home. Cassian gestures uh, to table four as he asks Kino, a new man for them today, adding that it's always the next day that a replacement shows up. Kino furrows his brow and shakes his head as he tells Cassian, you know the drill. And he walks away. Cassian smirks as he shoots a glance at Melchi, and the two men get back to work. Well, back on Ferrix, Bix breathes heavily as uh, the guards bind her wrists to the arms of the chair. And Dr. Gorst smiles as he tells her, there's nothing to fear about the restraints. Um, I maybe jumped the gun on this guy a little bit too early because we only got that corner shot of him last week. But remember I mm. pulled up his, uh, his IMDB and I'm like, does this guy not look like a mad scientist? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to revisit that for a second. Does this guy not look like a mad scientist? <laughs> All the hallmarks. Oh my God. You got to enjoy your work no matter what you do. Well, and this guy clearly does. Um, so Gorse uh, smiles as he says, there's nothing to fear about the restraints. He says it's actually safer for her to be tethered while they uh, engage. Smiling, he says, there's nothing inherently physical about the process, but there were some early trials that were, as he calls it, a bit chaotic. And he laughs kind of when he says it, too. When the guards leave the room, Gorst wheels over a console as he begins to explain uh, what Bix is about to endure. He begins by telling her that in the outer rim, there's a moon called Dizon Frey, and that's another new name, by the way. Continuing, he says that there was an unusual native species there that were extremely hostile to the idea of a proposed Imperial refueling center. Gorst fiddles with the controls on his console before continuing, and absently he nods as he recounts, I say was because they created such a stir that the local commanders were granted permission to use any means necessary. So they're not there. anymore. Yeah. He shakes his head at the thought and he removes his lab coat as he tells Bix that what's important is that the massacre of the Dizonites was both broadcast and recorded as proof that the mission was actually accomplished. Gorst scratches his head as he explains that the Dizonites make a sound when they die a sound that he calls a choral agonized pleading. And it was unlike anything that anyone had ever heard before. He says that the three communications officers that were monitoring the broadcast were found hours later, huddled together in what he calls various states of emotional distress. And they were found in a crawl space underneath the ship's bridge. (laughs) Gesturing over his console, Gort, uh, um, Good Lord. Gorst. Gorst says that they have taken the Dizonite recordings and they've modified them using a section of what he believes are the screams of children and says that it has a particular effect on the listener. 
Bix watches nervously as Gorst unlatches a pelican case and removes a large stylized set of headphones. He makes a few adjustments on the headphones and a red light flashes on as he powers them up. Gorst says, it doesn't take long, uh, but it won't feel that way to her. Then moving to her side, Gorst instructs Bix to let him know when she's willing to cooperate and that if she's having difficulty in speaking, just shake her head from side to side. <laughs> At that very moment, Dedra, who's been standing in the doorway, steps into the room and tells Bix that she'll want to fully cooperate because listening to the screaming Dizonite children repeatedly causes the most damage. Um, that's the thing I wanted to touch on. The screams of children being murdered is being used as a means of torture. Mm-hmm. That ranks up there with some of the most twisted things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes uh, makes just outright killing younglings practically normal. <laughs> on some level, yeah. On right. some level, it, it it softens that slightly. At least we don't hear their screams, or no one the, recorded them to use in a, you know. There was part of me that was like, do I do like a big like an internet search on like you know animals I, animals I honestly, that that emit that emit like tones at death and i make i could spend hours on that so i'm well, like there's, nope there's i won't one i can think of and, and that's a rabbit and if you've oh, ever yeah. heard a rabbit scream in pain and it's 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 like sticking a, a hot poker on a child or something it's it's a yeah. horrible yeah, horrible yeah. sound and it's immediately where my kind of brain went to yeah uh, something you know akin to that uh very disturbing and Doug Illingsworth, exactly. he, he's chimed in bunnies. <laughs> yes, sir. Doug knows. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Rabbits. Yeah. If, you're, if you're a hunter. Um, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> it's scary. It's a scary thought to, to go that dark. Um, but I, I think it's it's important, too, that we remove that that veil, that, that, that's, that silly idea that um, the evil empire... Could have had some sort of benevolent uh, purpose, and I, you know, I mean, Palpatine has been planning this for so long, um, and you could even argue that the Sith have been planning this for oh, yeah. generations. Uh, and in 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 a way, it's it's nice to have the have the veil removed. Uh, right, right, yeah, I agree the, with the you. Evil, the evil that you know for sure. There was a so on that note, Hank. There was I saw some discourse this week. Um, we haven't talked about the dis, the fan discourse in a while. Um, people who are complaining about how like this is not Star Wars because the Star Wars is supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be laser swords and 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 space battles and it's like, how do you get to the fun if you don't see if you don't pull the veil back and see how the evil empire. You know, it, we just take it as wrote that, oh, the Empire is evil at the beginning of right. A New Hope. But right. we never really see the extent of what they are doing to the general population to make them the evil Empire. And well, that's uh, what it, this show is doing in space. It really ups the stakes. Like, it really, really punches home, you know. Oh, my God, yeah. These harsh facts. And it's another thing that's, like, rooted in real world, right? Oh, absolutely. Like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And tones and whatnot can cause all sorts of effects. For sure. For sure they do. So, and it's not all positive as they're saying. No. Well, this is an interesting part here uh, in this sequence because all of the ambient noise 
in the scene goes deathly silent until all we can hear is Bix uh, heavy breathing. And the look of fear on her face is oh so real. As the camera moves in on her eyes, she begins to tremble and sweat. And finally, she lets out a blood-curdling scream. And it's a, it, it's a callback. Um, when the door slams shut, oh, yeah. and the officer goes walking by, it is a throwback to the torture scene in A New Hope with Leia on the Death Star. Which is, is so that does two things for me. To, uh, First of all, it's my favorite smash cut that they've sort of reutilized. There's been a few throughout the different Star Wars shows that they've reutilized, like the circle going down and stuff. Yeah. Something without a Jedi. It's true. Sean it's true. says there is something wrong, uh, presumably, you mean with the show without having a Jedi in it. Um, you know what? I- I'm going to I'm going to go so far as to say that we don't know if there is or isn't a Jedi in it. We certainly have had uh, close proximity to Jedi artifacts, and I wouldn't rule it out just yet. Yeah, because like even on the little prison cards, they hint at Force-sensitive folks. Oh, sorry, got a follow-up comment from Sean. Something is nice. So you're saying it's nice that there aren't any Jedi in it. Okay, mm-hmm. well, that's actually a super valid point. Um no laser swords, no Jedi, no swashbuckling. It's Get you away from that yeah, main track yeah, yeah. of Skywalker. It's, it's a galaxy of trillions, and we know there were maybe 10,000 Jedi at the height of their power. Right, right. right. Galaxy of trillions. Okay. Um, yeah, so the, the thing with the smash cut. Oh, uh, not only is it my favorite smash cut that they sort of reutilized that cut for, but yeah. it's a reminder that, hey, wait a minute. The, one of the first things we saw was them torturing people. Torturing, yeah. So then again, an empire, right? With Han Solo. I also, yes, I also made a note about that as well. Yeah. Right. So this is much more sort of visceral. Yeah. But, um, and, and again, 1977, that style of filmmaking, it's, it's sort of better. They used, they used similar, it's not, it's not shot for shot, but it's very similar when, Mm -hmm. uh, when they torture Han Solo on Bespin and the door, it's the same door sound right and you get a bestman guard the, the walking da- away pan and yeah the, the boots walking yeah. and then you've so, got uh, where you get lando talking to uh, vader about it's about easy to forget that, that scene that like oh vader's torturing me uh, right here it's yeah really oh, easy yeah. to forget that how dark that is no absolutely you're right no on my first viewing though yeah i didn't think that the uh the murdered folk were for some reason i had in my hand that it was more animals like a native species. Yeah. I guess maybe I just assumed sentient, but I mean, um, cause animals, I don't know if animals, I don't think you would use the distinction any means necessary. Yeah. You know what I mean? Also, like an, animals sure. being a lower form, you would just be like, yeah, just Get kill them. them. Yeah. Would you, would you also, would you call, uh, the young of animals children? Yeah. Well, true. no, you're, you're right. You're right. Well, some might, <laughs> yeah some people might yeah, yeah there's yeah. lots of pet parents yeah no you're right, well, you're that, right. i mean i call my dog we all my we all have pets <laughs> in, in general i don't refer to animals as children the young of animals right like, you right. Know, especially when they're subdivided into their groups they all have their kind of names for you know, you know what they say if you want to know your et cetera, et cetera. you want to know if you're going to be a good parent get get a pet mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> all right well back on narkino five uh, Cassian and the other men of 52D go about the endless task of assembling the mystery part. But something is different about today. 
And Cassian spots a guard walking past a window just outside the work floor, and he calls out, I'm taking my run, which apparently means I'm going to the bathroom. And he heads off to the restroom. Another worker, uh, whose name is Beernock, uh, from another table, watches intently as Cassian passes past uh, his table. I thought he was going to get jumped in the shower style prisons thing there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At the beginning. I really thought he was not necessary. They don't make it 100% clear here if my run is is code for what he's actually doing in the bathroom or just, hey, I'm going to the bathroom. Mm. Either way, Cassian does enter the washroom and spotting that the lid to the toilet is up, he kicks it down before turning to a panel above uh, what appears to be a sink on the adjacent wall. Right. Uh, the the panel appears to be dented, but otherwise intact. And uh, with a quick tap in the right place, Cassian knocks the panel loose and carefully removes it and places it on the floor. Behind the panel lays an assortment of pipes, tubes, and conduit. Presumably, it's all part of the plumbing for the washroom. Taking a quick look around the corner, Cassian determines the coast is clear, at least for the moment. So he reaches inside the mass of plumbing and he pulls out a homemade saw that looks like it's made from a broken piece of metal wrapped in some of the white fabric from an inmate jumpsuit and he sets to work on a large pipe. Now the pipe is quite scarred, so Cassian and perhaps this other fellow Beernock have both been working on it. Now, the descriptive audio calls it a standpipe. So if that's the case, then this pipe may span multiple levels and could be part of a fire suppression system. True. Well, just after a few strokes of the makeshift saw, the buzzer sounds and the voice of God announces on program, new man on the floor, everyone hold positions. Cassian scrambles to toss the saw back into the plumbing and replaces the panel. Rushing back out onto the work floor, Beernock is standing there waiting to go to the bathroom. And after a brief moment of recognition, both men assume the on-program position and wait for what's next. Kino shouts out, new man on the floor, hold your positions. And everyone turns their attention to the gantry above the work floor. Uh, so Beernock, this is actor, uh, now I, I do not want to mess up this gentleman's name and I apologize. Sometimes I don't do this right, but Rasak Kukoyi, he's a relatively new actor, with just a small handful of acting credits. The earliest was a 2018 short film called sex ed, where he played a character by the name of Darius. Uh, other roles include, uh, the Netflix film, his house, where he plays, uh, William and The Last Tree, where he plays Dean. But uh, young actor, relatively new on the scene. Hmm. Yeah, so that's Beernock. Well, as an armed guard steps out onto the gantry, Cassian mutters to Beernock that there are two men back and two weapons. Another guard can be heard ordering someone onto the lift, while Beernock notices that the first guard isn't wearing the insulated boots. Apparently, the new man hasn't endeared himself to the guards because as he steps onto the lift, one of them prods him with the shock rod. The prisoner buckles, but he catches himself on the railing of the lift, something that both Birnock and Cassian find very interesting. Birnock asserts that uh, anything that moves isn't wired and it can't hurt you. It seems that Cassian and Birnock have been conspiring to get out of here as Cassian says he's got a new plan. 
he says, we'll attack the guard right now as he's bringing the new man in. And I'm, I actually stopped for a second. I'm like, are you theorizing about the next time they bring somebody right. in right I now? Did, or do you I mean like you right now? Right now. now. Right yeah. Now. It, having watched it, what, three times now? I think he meant in the now now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes. Attack the guard. Uh, Birnock is skeptical of the plan, saying, well, he'll just go back up. But Cassian is confident that they can take the lone Imperial and his weapon and shut the lift down somewhere at the halfway point. The guard depo- then deposits the new man onto the work floor and uh, Kino Loy launches into his speech regarding 5-2-D. While Cassian and Birnock watch the lift raise back up again, their window of opportunity now closed, at least for now. On Narkina 5, uh, sorry, not on Narkina 5. Wow, that was a, a bit Ferex. of a blunder. On Ferex, Bix, still strapped to the chair, hangs her head. Her breathing is labored, and she looks like a mess. Dr. Gort slides the headphones off of her ears, and Dedrick tells him don't put them away as she lifts Bix's head by the chin. With a sinister stare, Dedra says, shall we begin? And she asks Bix when she last saw Cassian Andor. Bix twitches, seemingly unable to answer. Now back on Narkina 5. (laughs) (laughs) At uh, table 5, Olaf struggles to tighten a bolt, and uh, Cassian helps him uh, get it fastened. As the men take a hands-off position, awaiting the next component to rise up from underneath the table, Olaf says, where do we stand? Are we in the game? Jembok tells him they are up a rack with one hour left on the shift. And the men all look at Olaf with concern. With some confusion, Olaf asks Jembok, uh, um, wow, apparently my autocorrect did not correct that properly. Uh, oh, ask, yeah, he basically, tell us. Uh, <laughs> what, what's on now? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's not so strange. It's not like yeah. mayonnaise in the fridge. No, not really. <laughs> uh, Ham says that they just talked about this and uh, they told him two minutes ago. And angrily, Olaf blurts out, do you think I don't want to win? Am I working or not? One rack up and hours to lose. What are you waiting for? Uh, Then launching into a flurry of motion, Olaf and the rest of Table 5 put it in high gear and get back to work. Zal and Ham share an understanding look while Cassian keeps one eye on his work and the other on the confused Olaf. At the hotel on Ferrex, Dedra Miro, having concluded her interrogation of Bix, leaves the makeshift interrogation room. With her top coat and headdress on, it would appear that her, her work there is done, at least for now. Out in the hallway, she meets with the prefect, Captain Tigo. Dedra orders the man to keep Bix alive, and he asks, as a prisoner? And she corrects him by saying, as a witness, adding that Bix is the only one they have that can identify Axis. Tigo asks, what about Pack? And Dedra says she doesn't care. Tigo says he wants to hang him as a message to the people to remind them of who's in charge. And uh, nonchalantly, Dedra remarks, as you wish. And she walks away as two Imperial soldiers untie Bix from the chair and drop her limp body on a mattress in the corner of the room. Uh, Tigo, the look on his face. Oh, I'd like to hang him. Yeah. Like, there must be some like pre-screen for officers, like scumbag check. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a history of people getting hanged on this planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
but again, here's your big bad evil empire, and they are definitely living up to it. Yeah, well, really maybe yeah. Idea down. The last hanging was like twelve years prior, right? Oh, that's also true. So, and that was involved because of yeah the imperial yeah, yeah. troops being there. I want to talk about something here for a second, specifically about Tigo, not Tigo himself, but what Tigo represents. And this came again through some of the online discourse that I was reading through in the last week. I, I was uh, in one of the Facebook groups and I'd made a comment about sort of what's going on here. Um, Tigo, Tigo in essence is the, you know, is the first Imperial governor that will, we've been introduced to. The empire, the empire has taken control of a corporate run world and have imposed basically martial law. Yeah. This is the beginning of the dissolution of the Senate. First stone has been cast. Yeah, it really is. So, I mean, you know, all the way. Once the regional governors are in place, then they can remove the. uh, Right. Exactly. So here you are, your first, you know, prefect is, is effectively, this is your first governor imperial governor i just thought it was an interesting uh mm-hmm. an interesting a lot of yeah in yeah yeah uh yeah so moving on um <clears throat> at the imperial senate mon mothma takes the floor to openly oppose the emperor's public safety legislation from off camera a voice can be heard shouting long live the empire while mon asks the assembly if there is anything facing them right now that is more important than imperial overreach mon calls the pord legislation uh an all too predictable march towards complete unchallenged authority then banter from all across the rotunda breaks out while uh, as some senators deride her while others uh, raise their voice in support but perhaps the most telling gesture is the large number of senate pods that switch off their lights and go dark and as Mon continues her appeal, the raucous chatter just gets louder and louder. I counted there, uh, there are roughly 17 pods just by the sound of the, the light switches that turn off. But when you consider that there are over 2,000 seats in the Senate, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. This mm-hmm. felt more like an official Senate meeting than the last one. We saw uh, on very the much did, yeah. It's like almost every pod is full or it's it i mean at least everyone you see is full this um, one the last one was when the uh the aldani thing happened and people got right. up and left this one left. people sh- shut the lights off but sit back down right well after the inaction of that legislation you know you might want to show up and make sure they're not taking something <laughs> else away from you or your sector i guess so it's so right. true isn't it so Mon reminds the assembly that their first responsibility is to their constituents. And the second is to protect the power and independence of the Senate itself. She says that she's come here today in the hopes of speaking with like-minded senators who still believe that when they enter the Senate building, that they are in effect entering a temple. Nice analogy, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, at one point, it sounded like the, the voice of Masameda calling for order uh, between uh, the 16 minutes and uh, 28 seconds. But there is so much background chatter. I couldn't get a clean audio sample. However, it makes sense that as the Grand Vizier. Yeah, he would be overseeing. Yeah, part of his job is Speaker of the Senate. And it is remar- it sounds remarkably like the, uh, the same clip 
from uh, Attack of the Clones. It does. Um, when Jar Jar, <laughs> when Jar Jar, considering was... uh, they name drop him in, in one of the first episodes. At, yeah. Uh, the yeah, 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 yeah. Because I would have thought twelve years in, they might have, you know, uh, had a new one. The, uh, well, just the idea because we've always been led to believe that they were so xenophobic when it came to non-humans in legends absolutely right right so i thought maybe you know it just in my head canon i was like by this time there would be no more you know like thrawn is the uh absolute uh you know wild card thrown in the mix well even saw last week in in uh, that episode he talks about uh i don't know if it was one of the maya pay or anto krieger as being a human cultist Right. So, I mean, there, there are elements of, uh, of the, of the general population that probably do have that sentiment, like, like a human first kind of thing, but it doesn't seem to be sort of the norm. Like it was no. in legends. Yeah. No. I just thought it was interesting that we got that, that audio clip. So possible, possible audio cameo from the grand vizier. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that, that image you blow it up. It's impossible to make out if that's really him. The image I've used, that's from uh, attack of the clones <laughs> or sorry. That's actually from the phantom menace. I should say. Oh, nice. All right. Outside the Senate, a downtrodden Mon Mothma sits in the back seat of her limo. She keys the intercom uh, and makes no pleasantries with Chloris. Instead, she tells him drive. Chloris informs Mon that he's received a message from the embassy residence that her cousin has arrived. Confused, Mon says, what? And Chloris repeats, your cousin. Sitting forward in her seat and staring at the back of Chloris's head, Mon remarks, at the embassy? She's there now? Chloris responds, uh, they said you'd want to know. Mon nods and leans back in her seat as the speeder pulls away. and She peers out the window with a troubled look. On Narkina 5, the men of both uh, both 5-2 shifts, uh, day and night, stand in their covered skybridge. They all talk noisily amongst themselves, and Kino shouts at them to keep it down. At the same time, Taga gestures with the same sign language we saw him use previously, while Melshi remarks that the Imperials could keep them standing there in the closed uh, closed bridge as long as they wanted to. Cassian looks at Ham and exclaims, something's wrong. And Jembok remarks that, well, whatever it is, they're taking their time about it. Cassian approaches Taga and asks, what are they saying? And Taga tells him that he thinks there's something on level two. Zal remarks that it's getting stale inside the bridge before the camera cuts over to Olaf. Something is definitely wrong with him, but he insists that he's fine. At the same time, Taga remarks, level two, far side. From further up the line, Birnok asks, is something broken? What's he saying? As the sign language message makes its way around the various sky bridges of level five, the men begin to get anxious about what's going on. Kino shouts for everyone to be quiet. Well, at the same time, the lights go out and we can hear what sounds like electronic equipment powering down, almost like a generator kind of. The lights are out for only a few seconds, but when they come back on, there is a palpable unease about the men. When the men ask, what was that? Kino tries to quell the excitement by suggesting it was nothing. He says, oh, someone didn't load into their sky bridge, and now they're just performing a head count. Sarcastically, Melshi quips, so they cut the power? Suddenly, the facility alarm sounds. 
Birnock, who is apparently also skilled in the prison sign language, says there's something wrong on two, but the message is being signed so fast that he just can't keep up. Kino loses his shit and screams for everyone to calm down, but a panicked Taga shouts that something is really wrong on two. Kino, having had enough, pulls Taga away from the window and yells at him how he doesn't have a clue about what the other bridges are saying. He says it takes a week for one word to make its way all the way up here. And you're panicking about something that's happening on the other side of the building? At his wit's end, he mockingly screams at Taga, how many hands does it take for one word to get up here? Jembok tries to be the voice of reason when he acknowledges that, yes, it's a long way away, but before he can finish his thought, the buzzer sounds and the voice of God orders everyone in place on program. But the voice continues in a way that we've never heard it before, as it says, feet down, face front, hands on heads. We will have immediate facility compliance, or we will begin activating floors without warning. Bridges on program will have their doors opened, all shifts to proceed immediately to their stations. Now that's a different, uh, we've never heard that before. Mm-hmm. Then the buzzer sounds and the bridge doors open and the men begin to file out. Cassian, looking out the window, sees the same activity unfolding on the adjacent sky bridge. They just, hunt, they just put everybody in the bridge. We'll just stay there. Hold them. Oh, sorry. <laughs> right. At uh, Back at Mon Mothma's embassy residence, uh, Lita stands just inside the doorway of the lounge, uh, admiring a brand new golden lame dress. On the couch beside her sits a blonde woman. As uh, Mon enters the lounge, Lita excitedly tells her uh, how Aunt Vel has been to Tasio Moon, another new name, and has brought her a new dress. Smiling Mon says, your father may have an opinion and we'll see if he lets you wear it. And uh, Lita remarks, well, he lets me do anything I want. The look on her face and the tone in her voice make it feel like it's somehow a contest of wills between mother and daughter. It's definitely not lost on Vel either as she gives Mon a very long look. Oh, we got a new uh, new viewer chiming in tonight. It's uh, Payne's Toy Samples. Hola all. Hello. Uh, hello, Payne's Toy Samples. Thank you uh, for joining in on the stream tonight. We are just breaking down episode nine of Andor. It's uh, nobody's listening, and that is clearly not the case because there are a few of you listening right now. Ears Welcome aboard. And please, if you have any questions or comments for anybody on the panel, let them fly as they come up, and we will do our best to answer them. All right, where was that here? Long look. Okay, now, feigning a smile, Mon suggests that Lita goes and tries on uh, the dress. And when she runs off, Mon exasperatedly says to Vel, where have you been? Vel offers her a terse traveling and uh, Mon retorts for six months. And uh, Vel remarks, there's a lot to see. Staring deeply at her cousin, Mon whispers, I don't have enough to worry about. And Vel stares coldly at her and says, uh, the empire doesn't rest. Adding that the rebellion comes first and taking a page from Cynthia's book. We take what's left. Um, is that is that really Vel coming to terms with you know the the 
the spurring that she got from Cinta? I think so. Or does she like, I can't, I can't help but feel like it's coming. That's coming from a very personal place for her. Yeah. It's less about her commitment to the cause and more so, about. I don't think for a second that Val recruited Mon Mothma, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, she's, she's sort of reinforcing her worth like this. It's a failed way to say, these are your plans. This is what you wanted. This is what yeah. I'm doing. Yeah. It has to take precedence. And then she's, she's using uh, Sinta's exclamation mark sort of to, uh, to punctuate the sentence. Yeah. 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 Uh, something that's come up before, and we've talked about this is the way that, um, for, for people who are just joining us for the first time, if you don't know, like, um, we, t- we tend to do these analyses, um, over several days as we watch and rewatch the episode with both the descriptive audio and the subtitles, because there's often, uh, little, little nuances in there that you wouldn't generally pick up on. And, uh, again, the words rebellion are capitalized here. Um, in a way that they weren't in previous episodes. So there is a distinction about what is the formal rebellion versus what is random rebel activity because later on in the episode, rebel comes up again and it's not capitalized. Right. right. So I find it interesting that they're making that distinction. All right. Well, uh, what do we got? Oh, so, uh, pains, uh, pains, toy samples. I'm enjoying the show. Hopefully uh, you're enjoying and, or hopefully you're enjoying our show as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Andor has surprised me. It's nice to have some character work. Uh, couldn't agree with you more to see the level of development that's going on, especially in this episode. Uh, creepy Cyril Karn and uh, yeah, just fascist, uh, fascist Dedra. Based on where we met them and where they are now, it's like, you know, huge yeah, evolutionary yeah. leaps. Everybody's arcing me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to have a, a, a quite a bit of a, of a con flab here towards the end of the show on a couple of other characters, because I really think that there's some, there's some, some interesting what ifs that I want to, that I want to propose that, that may influence the way you think about uh, a, a certain person. All right. So uh, Mon asks if Vel is going to be going home for a visit, adding that they've been after me to find you uh presumably that's referring to vel's family mm-hmm. probably a, a parent or parents i presume well vel says that she is but she stopped here on coruscant to see her first and to get cleaned up a bit then lowering her voice to a mere whisper mon asks seriously vel what does he have you doing and without blinking an eye vel eyes her back and says who yeah. It's the same way that she said the uh, said it to Cassian. Yep. Super important though, because she doesn't know that Bella was involved in the uh, Donnie heist necessarily. Yeah, I didn't get yeah. that impression. Like she's running she knows she's interacting with him, but right, right. In what capacity? Right. Well, not leading the charge. So let's let's look at all of that. What do we know? She's saying that in the same way that she said it to Cassian when, when Cassian was talking about Luthen. Also, Vel's interaction with uh, um, Clea, oh, I thought he'd be here, really painted that picture that she's PO'd at, at Luthen for some reason. Yeah. Well, I mean, sticking him with Cassian at the last minute, and she had to kind of, you know, tuck and roll with a few punches from the uh, and, rest of them. You know, even though it was a technical success, it did go sideways. She oh, lost oh, yeah. people. three people, sorry, three, four people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
there is something uh, that is is being intentionally being left unsaid about Luthen that you know could be a bomb drop yeah later on who knows but there is again there's that again it's just that un that unspoken thing that's left me going hmm, why wouldn't she just say like cuz they they know that each other knows we're talking about Luthen yeah yeah but again they say nobody's listening, but we know damn well. well uh, there listening. you go. So, I mean, is the, is the embassy Be resident the husband or is it bugged? I was going to say, is the embassy residence uh, bugged? <laughs> well, it's not that, permanent that, felt, thing. that felt more like, uh, you know, if you and I are having a conversation, I say, let's not talk about that anymore. And you say, let's not talk about what talk about what, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's almost that situation where yeah, it, I suppose so. parties know, but she's like, who? Well, if the embassy residence is bugged, then take Holma uh, yeah. really in for some serious trouble yeah, right. a lot sooner than maybe we think he is. I think he's in for trouble just based on his interactions with the husband. Well, there yeah, could be I that think, too. I think her husband is going to be quite the villain. Yeah. Last week, Hank, I know we, you missed us. Um, I had this like question because, you know, for the first time, I almost felt sympathetic towards Perrin as a jilted husband. You know, where I questioned, is he like seriously, like just, I don't want to say pining for her, but like, he's genuinely like disgruntled romantically versus I'm an Imperial spy. Yeah. Well, I mean, in these spy thrillers, traditionally, nothing is ever at face value. No, no, no. He feels like a bad guy. So that might be a misdirect. Yeah. Yeah. Because it could be as simple as, you know, my wife is going off into corners to secretly talk with this guy that she used to, you know, so in, have a relationship with. Getting back to Vel and Mon Mothma here talking to each other, how far up the pecking order do we think Vel really is? Because seeing these two together and getting the revelation that they are, in fact, cousins begs the question, who's the recruiter and who's the recruited? Mm. Well, that's what I said a few minutes ago. I don't think for a second that Val recruited her. No. I think that Mon probably recruited Val. Uh, or Val came to it on her own. And said, how can I help? After a fashion. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Very interesting. But, but oddly enough, Lita calls her Aunt Val. She does make that distinction, right? So, maybe it's out of, the, out of respect when the, the cousin is that much older. Could be. Yeah. I Yeah, I've definitely, uh, in my own life, I've had... Uh, cousins that were like that you referred to as an aunt years older than me yeah, yeah 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 okay well back on narkina 5 the floor of the living quarters is red and everyone is in their cell melshi sits in his bunk eating some of the nutrient paste listening to a conversation that cassian is having with kino just below him cassian asks kino if he's ever thought about escaping and uh, kino says you know i won't answer that so Cassian takes that as a no. Kino tells him, you can take whatever you want from it, uh, but if Cassian keeps flapping his mouth, he will regret it. But Cassian keeps going. He says, I'm sure you've thought about it. And he asks Kino how many guards are on each level. Kino tells Cassian that uh, if he wants out of there alive, he needs to turn that part of his mind off. Cassian nods as he says, okay, before asking Kino how many shifts he has left. Looking at his display, Kino remarks with a sigh, 217. So Cassian proposes that Kino tells him everything he knows before his release date. Kino shoots him a stern look and says, you've been warned. 
And Cassian chuckles when he says, do you think they care what we say? Kino says, you're on your own with this. And Cassian asks him, why? Again, he says, you think they're listening? But that's just the beginning. He goes on scoffing. You think they care enough to make an effort? Kino whispers back, like you would know. Cassian leans his head out of the cell into the hallway and says, I know this. They don't need to care. All they need to do is turn this floor on twice a day and keep the numbers rolling. Kino looks down, seemingly to consider Cassian's words. Mm -hmm. And uh, Cassian continues. He questions, why would the Empire bother listening to them when they're nothing to them? He asserts that Melshi is right. The men are cheaper than droids and they're easier to replace. Kino shakes his head back and forth as he gets up and replaces his plate in the slot on the back wall and then lays down on his bunk with his back towards Cassian. Kino flashes a smile back at Cassian as he says, good luck to you, and puts his head down. Cassian reasserts that no one is listening and asks Kino again how many guards are on each level. But Kino just ignores him and switches off the nightlight. Cassian and Melshi exchange glances, and Melshi shrugs his shoulders in a, oh well, kind of gesture. Angry, Cassian picks himself up, and he paces around his cell as he shouts, nobody's listening, nobody's listening. Now, the whole sequence begs, do we actually think that Kino has thought about getting out? What do you think? Maybe at the beginning of his sentence? Wouldn't every prisoner think that? It sure would I've, be nice I've, to be I've out of here. I've often heard it said that uh, you know, it's 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 a it's a captive's job to to escape. Yeah, more more in terms of like POW camp style, you know, movies or books or tales or stuff. But yep, yep, um, it's you know, it's 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 your job to try to escape, and it's their job from to a military perspective. You. It is. It is. Right. It's Absolutely. it's codified in our law. Absolutely. You are obligated to attempt to rejoin. That's right. And so, um, I, I, um, you know, having been in a drunk tank overnight, <laughs> yeah, the yeah, thought yeah. crossed my mind. How do, How I, do get I get out of here? here? <laughs> right. So, I mean, even that, I, I would say, of course, it's, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. it's crossed his mind. You know, you bring up some good questions about Kino, about his background, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna add to that a little bit later. Maybe he does have some kind of background uh, in a security force or something like that. Mm. At the same time, though, you know, the way he says you're on your own with that, I kind of wonder if maybe it, the thought had crossed his mind at one point, but then, you know, the longer he's been there, you know, we had one, we had an inmate uh, die by suicide last week. You see enough of that. And that's where you get to that place where you're just callous towards everything. And you just, now you're at that point, just keep your head down, do your job. I also imagine there wouldn't be a lot of tried, failed and gone back to work. Remember where I had said uh, the next episode will be cool hand Lucy or the cool hand. Yeah. 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 Tries to escape and that it wins him the favor of the inmates, but he's put back in the hole, if you will. Yeah. Now, now I'm, I'm pretty sure they just kill you. Well, Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So I, I don't think. Uh, I, I think that would inform him more than anything. Like any, any attempts aren't met with, uh, Oh, you're just going back on the line. Right. Uh, right. And a slap on the wrist. They're, they're met with death. Uh, and so that would certainly influence your willingness to try to escape. I agree with you. Yeah. I agree. I think Kino has 100% at this point. Yep. Invested all his hope on that counter. Yeah. Like there's at the end enough, of this, I'm getting out. There's enough 
inference, I think, in what we've seen from Kino so far that he's a believer in the system. Yeah. At least up until the end of this episode where he believed if you were a good boy and you did what they told you, you'd be okay. Yeah. And I, and I'm, well, I'll save it for later because that, that gets into what I want to talk about at the end. It's nighttime on Coruscant and uh, at the ISB central office, Major Partagaz is chairing another meeting of the sector supervisors. However, several of them, including Blevin, are absent. The major remarks that uh, Dedra took Dr. Gorst with her to interrogate the detainees on Ferrex. And he says, I'm glad that's working out. <laughs> Dedra asserts that uh, her interrogation was thorough and she has no reason to believe that any information was withheld from her. Partagaz remarks that uh, she still has uh, no idea on who this Axis character is. For now, he just remains the buyer in a stolen goods case. Dedra uh, admits that it is disappointing, but she suggests that his anonymity speaks to the scope of what he's doing. She suggests that Axis runs a very disciplined operation that is large enough to not be reliant on any one network or supplier. And she also says that Bix gave them a list of all the gear that was run through Ferrix, adding that she has matched a recovered targeting unit to a rebel cell associated with Maya Pei. Now, last week I said that there, there was no uh, Star Wars reference to a specific Maya Pei, and that remains true. But, Hank, you pointed out this week that there is a Legends reference to a character named Maya. Yes, sir. Now, Maya appears as an NPC. That's a non-player character in uh, an adventure called Trader's Gambit. Now, it's the first part in a 10-part adventure series for the Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing game. That uh, 10-part, it's called The Dawn of Defiance. It first came out in uh, November uh, 2007. By the way, Saga Edition, probably the most derided edition of the role-playing game. I actually like it. Love um, it. It's based on fourth edition, fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons, which uh, yeah. universally, uh, I think most people who play D and D did not like fourth, but Saga Edition Star Wars uses the near exact same rule set, and it, it kind of works. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like yeah, I don't want to get into it too much, but definitely fourth edition drove me to Pathfinder. Of fantasy <laughs> games. I hear fifth edition is excellent. I haven't dabbled yet. In uh, in that adventure, the players actually uh, uh, thwart uh, the the construction of a uh, prototype super star destroyer. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, in Trader's Gambit, Maya is a human woman from Alderaan who served as part of Bail Organa's personal security detail during the end of the Clone War, and uh, shortly after the formation of the Empire, he sent her on a mission to acquire cargo that would be essential to weakening the empire Hmm. and while and while that particular maya character is never given a last name it's not a far stretch to envision that uh the maya pay in this show might be the same person or at the very least uh was inspired by this npc from a hugely derided role-playing game first first of all it's amazing that to think that uh, they might dig that deep to find a character. I agree. And Love it's it. Equally amazing that we could dig that deep to find what they may have found. Yeah. 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 
Pablo Hidalgo, if you're not watching, you should be. <laughs> Hire these guys. These guys here. Hire these guys. We got one last week. I don't know. Did you get a chance to look at last week's episode? We got a an uh, an X wing component. I was doing a bunch of stuff uh, while I was watching it, but yeah, I did catch most of it. One of the components that uh, Luthen brought um, brought saw was actually the the component that actually allows an X wing fighter to fly under repulsor lift. Nice, which I thought was cool. The drive converters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so um, Supervisor Young reads from his uh, data pad, remarking that Andor is all the way through this, a point that Dedra wants to highlight. Now, Major Partagaz refers to him as the local thief, the runaway murderer, and Dedra points out that uh, Cassie and Andor returned to Ferrix just three nights after the Aldani incident with a sum of money. Supervisor Legret asks if the money could have been from the sale of the Starpath unit. But Supervisor Young, sitting beside him, says it can't be because they left it behind, right? Yeah. Both of these guys, uh, and I, I couldn't find a shot of them. Like, but let's, are you? We're not immune to the fact that that very Starpath unit that they're talking about was sitting on the table, no more than twenty feet away from them in the last meeting with uh, Yularen. Details. Details. I, I had a thought. Are, are we sure that they were in the meeting? They were. I went back yeah, and watched I, it. They I, I were thought there. so too. I thought so too. And then, like I had said in the chat uh, a couple of days ago, it, it speaks to the <laughs> sort of level of incompetence that exists in sections of the brass in any large, large organization. These You're guys are supervisors. They're officers. Good lord! <laughs> right. You can. You could just put your head down, do your paperwork, make sure the I's are dotted and the T's are gouged, you know, um, and, and probably ascend the chain of command. Not so. only, not only are they in attendance at that meeting, Dedra has this whole exposition piece where she's like, this is the star path unit recovered from the scene. It was stolen from the Naval yard at Steergard a year ago. Right. Like she, she just she told them. It, yeah. Yes. And I'm like, right. You guys are dumb as uh, you know. Posts. Actually, just I, I just had a thought. Maybe they sure. were just completely disregarding anything that a female said. You know, there is every possibility that that is the case. Or they just sort of like tuned in. You know? you know what it's like if you've been in a big meeting where everybody's kind of focused on their, right. you know, I can I don't have to listen to their part because I'm waiting for my turn to speak mm-hmm. because my issues are bigger than theirs. Sure. Or ever been to church? Well, there's that too. Yep. yep. <laughs> <laughs> you talking to me wait question what stand up what oh, oh. right uh <laughs> major part of oh sorry andy go it ahead. could be all that or it could be just as simple as maybe he's implying that before luthan and cassian made their escape yeah they completed the transaction so now cassian's got the cash right, luthan right. loses the box and away they go i suppose you know that actually but, does make sense but it was kind of but it is kind of lost hard. on me that yeah. it was recovered it's like both literally the the foundation cornerstone of this entire thing i'm thinking if off. you were cassian and i was luthan and let's just let's all of the other things aside if i was just there to buy the thing from you yeah and we got bumped and i didn't get my thing i'm not paying you no give me my money back i didn't get my box <laughs> But they're they're corrected, aren't they corrected at the end of the scene? They are not. Oh. Other than the fact that she's uh where is it here? Could it have been from the sale of the Star Path unit? And he says it can't be because they left it behind. And he adds question mark, 
right? And then she's like, yes, she does say that it was. Well, Major Partagaz looks at Dedra and asks if she's trying to connect the Ferrix incident to Aldani. And he calls it a bit of a stretch. Well, just then, Attendant Hirt blurts out that Andor shaved getting out of his seat to stand beside his boss. Hirt reads from a data pad. And he goes over the notes from an interview slash interrogation. Question. Describe his appearance. Answer. He'd shaved his beard. Here it goes on to say that two of the surviving soldiers from the Aldani incident said that the rebels were clean shaven and that they felt that one of them bore some similarity to Cassian Andor's reference photo. With that revelation, Major Partagas calls it worth running down. And he says that an Aldani connection would amplify interest and they should follow that up. Legret asks Dedra if she questioned Cassian's mother. But Dedra says that she's decided to wait, thinking it's better to stand back and let Marva uh, be potential bait. Because as she points out, his mother was the reason Cassian came back to Ferrix in the first place. And if he were to come back again and have any contact with her, the Imperials would know because they have her under constant surveillance. Uh, listening. And so does Luthen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For that matter. Both sides are listening. Uh, yeah. On Narkina 5, prisoners enter their respective sky bridges for the shift change. In the 5-2 bridge, a man from the night shift mutters, Have you heard what happened to Unit 2-5? Saul, uh, Zal says that they weren't told anything, and the men from the night shift are shocked that they haven't heard the news. A man shouts, They were fried out! While another says, They're killed! They're all gone! Both shifts, a hundred men! Zal asks, Who said? While Taga remarks, that can't be right. Finally, the muttering catches Kino's attention and he asks, who's saying this? And a young man from the night shift tells him it was a maintenance tech. While another man says they had a team go down to level two. And the first man, who's still quite agitated, blurts out, they said they'd fried the whole bridge. Another man points out that they told Zinska. Zinska, the floor manager for the night shift. When Cassian asks why, the man looks back at Zinska and says, ask him. Zinska and Kino meet at the center of the bridge. And when Kino asks the night shift manager, uh, he plainly tells him the tech heard they were making trouble. But no sooner does Zinska relay that information, the voice of God pipes in with the exact same warning as the night before. On program, feet down we will have immediate compliance or we will begin activating floors without warning etc etc as the men comply Olaf asks what did he say what happened on two Jembox says they don't know but melshi says they set them all free which strikes a nerve with kino as he drops his hands from his head and without warning gut punches melshi Cassian intervenes, trying to calm Kino down, but the enraged floor manager just hisses at Melshi on program. While Jembok helps Melshi recover from the unexpected attack, Cassian whispers to Kino, they need to be careful. He tells them, the less they think we know, the better. With a semblance of order restored, the frazzled Kino announces to the bridge, hold your program, tighten up and listen. It's a rumor. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. We've heard nothing. He says it's just another day, another shift, and suggests that everyone keeps their mouths shut and their heads down until they do know what's going on. 
Then the buzzer sounds, and both floor managers drop their hands and walk off as the lines begin to move in their respective directions. On Coruscant, Cyril Karn sits at the dining room table eating a bowl of crunchies. Edie remarks that he's up early and he's already dressed and groomed, and she notes that Cyril has had a haircut, and she asks if there's something she should know about. My God, this woman is just so... Mm -hmm. Like, she's almost like Joffrey Baratheon level. Like, you just love to hate her, which I'm sure she's a lovely woman, but she is an awful, awful human being, this character. (laughs) She's playing it to the perfect. Oh, she's so good. Cyril avoids making eye contact with his mother as he says, I told you not to leave dinner out last night. Edie remarks that Cyril's message was brief, and with him becoming so busy with the new job, she thought he might be forgetting to eat. Isn't it interesting, though, like, consider how, like, vile she is that they've still managed a way to make her a relatable mom? Well, smack him with one hand and care for him with the other. Exactly. The very first scene she's in, she slaps him, and then she hugs him. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um. I feel I, I made a note here saying it's like they've written her with a superiority complex. Mm. Yeah, it's that um, it's the guilt complex or the uh, you know the uh, yeah the, the mom complex where where you know the Catholic guilt. There's almost like a <laughs> what what's the word like living through him vicariously maybe. Right, there's no dad if he's not perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no dad here. He makes you question like what happened to the dad. Oh, that's so it? true. Yeah, yeah. maybe he crossed Uncle Harlow. Or, <laughs> That's an interesting, well, yeah. interesting I mean, question. A lot of like, uh, you know, uh, blame gets put on different people for different services. You know, so if if Cyril had something to do with his father's death, perhaps. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. Could, like, you know, there's very it's very nuanced for sure. Well, Cyril takes another spoonful of crunchies and says, "You've been searching my room again." And uh, Edie protests. She calls it cleaning, adding that she likes to keep a tidy house. Uh, But Cyril pushes the issue and says that uh, he knows that she's been inside his private box and he looks at her and says, I have ways of knowing, and then goes back to his cereal. Edie chuckles and she feigns a smile as she begins to chastise him. I find you a job. I press your uniform. I prepare two meals a day. I move mountains to scrape you off the floor and put you back on your feet. And what do I reap? Cyril looks at her as she asks, what is the return on my investment? But he redirects the conversation by reminding her that they were talking about her snooping on him, which only serves to fuel her more as she hisses at him, calling Cyril a shadow of a son, a tenant, a stranger. Raising his eyebrows, Cyril remarks, that's new. You'll want to remember that. <laughs> Edie, still trying to generate some sympathy for herself, talks about all the time Cyril was away on Morlana, asking him, "What if I, uh, what if I'd let your neglect drive me insane?" Maybe it did. It was. <laughs> Maybe it's just it's amplified, yeah. amplified <laughs> what was already there. As Edie continues to go off on her son, Cyril lifts his, his cereal bowl lifts it to his mouth, beginning to slurp on the blue milk loud enough to drown her out. <laughs> I, I laughed at that. I'm like, what else do you do? <laughs> Placing the bowl down on the table, he tells her stoically, I've been promoted. 
dumbfounded, an emotional smile creeps over Edie's face as she chuckles and now begins to espouse the virtues of her son. I knew they'd recognize your promise, she says. Cyril tells her that uh, with the promotion, his job will now require more of his time. And uh, Edie beams as she tells him how pleased Uncle Harlow will be. Edie practically jumps out of her seat and she goes to Cyril's side. She rubs his arm affectionately before pouring him another bowl of crunchies. And Cyril picks up a stray crunchy from the table and plops it into his bowl as we cut. Cut back to table five where the men uh, pull down on the overhead drill. Now, Olaf uh, stands there with a blank look on his face, and uh, with a little bit of prodding from Zal, he snaps out of it, and he grabs a hold with everyone else. Uh, with the component fully assembled, the men move it to a nearby rack. Still kind of confused, Olaf lags behind for a moment before he catches up. Then, moving back to the work table, the crew adopts the hands-off position while they wait for a new component to raise up. But just as Olaf leans on, the, uh, sorry, but Olaf leans on the table until Jembok prompts him to move his hands. With the new component now up, Olaf just stares at it while the three, uh, uh, the three other men turn it. Jembok encourages the table, "Come on, boys, um, we can do this." Cassian, who is now working opposite to Olaf, lifts one of the six spokes into place, while a gasping Olaf hesitates a moment before snapping to it again and retrieves the pin from under his station. Cassian gently tells him, I'll do it, just get it in. And with the pin in place, Olaf's condition appears to be worsening. Um, I didn't clue in that he was uh, having like cardiovascular issues, which is kind of, kind of sad considering how long I worked in healthcare for. <laughs> <laughs> Going downhill fast. I thought, fine. I thought that there was maybe like, we saw him having some issues before and I thought, Oh, he's, he's old. And I thought maybe we were seeing him slip into like some form of dementia. Mm -hmm. Um, and not until it got really, really bad did I kind of get it. Like, Oh no, no, it's not dementia. Yeah. They're literally working him to death. The do the do it's, he's so, so tragic. Um, Oh my gosh. Where'd it go? Demon Mothma's next. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm on the next one. At uh, Mon Mothma's embassy residence, Vel joins her cousin's family for breakfast. Um, they're eating some like crazy eggs. I don't, I don't know what those are, but uh, they look interesting. Uh, Perrin asks if uh, she's going back to Chandrilla today, and she says that uh, she is, noting that her travel plans are part of a pilgrimage. Presumably, the pilgrimage has been Vel's cover story to explain why she's been traveling for the last six months. Mm. Perrin asks if she's found a husband. And uh, Vel scoffs at the remark before she answers, uh, wasn't on my list of things to do. And uh, acting like a complete asshole, he remarks that she'll need a widower at this point because who's left of any value at your age? Especially if they're getting married at like 13, 14. Well, Vel plays it cool when she answers, yes, all the good ones are taken. FYI, by the way, uh, <laughs> Faye Marze, who plays Vel, is uh, 36. So, I mean, if we're to think that the character is the same age as the actress, yeah, that's where she's at. Yeah, that was such a good 
gig. No, uh, it was, and that's why. I mean, I I made no uh, no qualms about it. Acting like a complete asshole. Uh, yeah. That's what it says. <laughs> and if you uh, if you become a patron, you can read <laughs> you can read my notes because <laughs> they're all on our Patreon. Nice. Staring at his wife, Perrin remarks that uh, they've had quite an influx of Chandrillans there recently, and asks Vel if she remembers Take Holma. She says she does. And Lita punctuates that with uh, mother's old boyfriend. Caught off guard, Mon looks at Lita as she says, what? Then turning to Perrin, she says, is that something you've told her? But Perrin downplays it, saying that the key word is old. And uh, turning back to Lita, Mon remarks matter-of-factly that they were grade school uh, friends. Continuing his conversation with Mon's cousin, Perrin says, at least you've not gone political, Vel, as he stresses the word political. He then goes on to say that all of the interesting people are getting very tedious these days. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, is he poking Mon on purpose? Or maybe he's just uh, playing the dumb role and all the other senators are actually on edge because of what's going on i feel like it goes it harkens back to the the episode where he's planning the dinner party yeah and, and he doesn't care that some of those people are opposing viewpoints of her or he basically he's i think he says he says uh pretty plainly oh you're no fun yeah this is the fun end of the table i want to yeah yeah that's why i thought he's taking a jab directly at her mm. All right. Um, leaning back in her chair and taking a sip from her glass, Vel says, no one ever calls me tedious. <laughs> no, I guess not. Nope. Mm-hmm. Later, after breakfast, Mon walks Vel to the door where her packed bags wait for her. Vel remarks, take Holma like it's some kind of shocking revelation. And Mon tells her it's money. Vel asks her if that's all it is. And Mon says, I don't have enough to worry about. Suggesting maybe it is something else. Mm-hmm. Facing each other, Vel asks if there's anything she can do. And Mon tells her, just be a spoiled rich girl for a while and remind people that's who you are. And Vel says that she'll try. Mon then asks, what have we done, Vel? And with resolve in her voice, Vel answers, we've chosen a side. We're fighting against the dark. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I'll keep going. We're making something of our lives. The two women share a loving hug, and with her face now turned away from Mon, Vel swallows quite pensively. And then Cloris comes in to collect Vel's bags, and the two depart as Mon stands in the doorway watching them go. We're fighting against the dark. Oh, that's a how Star Warsy is that? Now, um, on the previous episode, when uh, Deidre is standing in front of the door for yep. the ISB. You had remarked, Hank, that the like the visuals were very similar to oh, the Vader mask. The Vader mask. Yeah, yeah. Right. Did Mon Mothma standing in the doorway here give you any kind of similar type vibes, but on the rebellion side? It it did. I couldn't really pick the exact image out. Like that one you was very something. visceral. I, I was thinking it. kind of X-wing fighter pilot helmet, a oh, little nice. bit, but nothing. Oh, I can, nothing I can see that the octagonal shape is yeah. The, yeah, the same yeah. general. And yeah, like, I don't know. Uh, posing cinematic like the to the other one. Yeah, There's yeah, the whole like the white, the the ivory white theme. I mean, we we meet Luke Skywalker wearing a variation of ivory white. Yeah, you know, even looking. I mean, we could make the analogy of the chandelier is reminiscent of the Tatooine sun, and it's the hero. 
Yeah. Kind of bathed in light. I don't know. I'm just stretching right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just got uh, my attention. No, no, it's totally worth it too. <laughs> Am I the only one that thought Vel's luggage was a repurposed cooler and a pet carrier? Yeah, totally. <laughs> Real yeah. world stuff. Well, I, I could have spent well, hours on beer. this one too, man. Like, I mean, that cooler, I'm sure I've seen it before, but you think I could find an exact picture of it? The I big could. version of the yeah. Cantono? Yes. But that's funny you say that because in my mind I'm like, we'll just add we'll add these to the to the ice cream maker yep. and right. the coffee grinder and the juicer and everything else that's come up. All right. So uh on Ferrex, light pours in through a louvered window and the camera pans down to the right until we can see Bix sitting against a wall in the hotel room. Her breathing is raspy, and she looks completely disheveled. Cut back to Coruscant, where it's a rainy day, while uh, people move about just outside the ISB central office. As the camera pans down and to the left, we see Cyril Karn step out from under the raised walkway that leads into the building. With his hands in his pockets, he paces as he watches agents arrive for work. Um, I took two images and stitched them together here to try and get the full height of the building. So it, mm. it doesn't, it doesn't line up a hundred percent, but it's uh still looks okay. I think. Mm, it's very okay. imposing. Yeah. 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 It totally is. Also it's raining on Coruscant. Um, that's another like sort of, you know, diversion from legends. Like I'm like, Oh, did they decide today was the day they were going to make it rain because they, ha- you know, in legends, they control yeah. the weather. That's right. What do they need to grow there? Yeah. <laughs> well, spotting Dedra amongst the agents, uh, Cyril steps out to intercept her. He introduces himself, and with a look of sheer incredulity on her face, Dedra says, I know who you are. Hearing the recognition, Cyril uh, stifles a slight smile. When she asks him, what are you doing here? Cyril says that he wanted to thank her for the promotion. But Dedra tells him that she had nothing to do with it. All the ISB did was to give him what she calls a clean bill of health. Now, on that note, do we think that, you know, when we saw Cyril get the job at the Bureau, when he said, I'm going to clear my name, do you think they did that for him? Mm. That they expunged the record, whatever record is there? Maybe not fully. You don't think so? Enough to get him up the ladder a bit. I thought clean bill of health was a metaphor for they just made it go away. It could be. Mm, it's possible, absolutely. All right. Well, Dedra looks around before asking him if he's been there waiting for her and uh, ratcheting up the creep factor to 11, he says, yes, I'd never lie to you. <laughs> Staring at the ground for a second, Cyril trips on his words before finding what he wanted to say. He sa- uh, He tells her that he needed to find her and it's not easy to thank her for what she did and what she continues to do. Continuing, Cyril says, to follow on the conversation we had last month. But Dedra cuts him off and tells him sternly, that wasn't a conversation. It was, a, it was for questioning. With laser focus, she bluntly asks, are you stalking me? And Cyril turns up the creep dial just another couple of notches as he says, I know you work here and I come sometimes to see if I'll see you. God, I'm hoping to run into you. Dedra reminds him of her position within the ISB and asks if he knows how much trouble he's in at this very moment. 
And Cyril doesn't answer the question. Instead, he looks at her deeply. Also, in this sequence where he's staring at her, did you notice how red his eyes are? Almost as if he's been crying. Mm -hmm. Am I the only one that thought that? No, he's definitely uh, like emotionally going he's back and forth. Super right emotional. Yeah. 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 Man. Yeah. He tells Dedra that he thought he had ruined his life. But after meeting her and seeing how she understood just how dangerous Cassian Andor was, his voice trails off before continuing. Just being in your present, I, I've realized that life is worth living, that if nothing else, there was justice and beauty in the galaxy. And if he just kept going, maybe his deranged belief that there was something better fated for him in the future. At that point, Dedra tries to sidestep Cyril, but he grabs her by the arm mm -hmm. and finishes. It was a dream worth clinging to. Dedra looks down at the two-handed grasp that he has on her arm and stealing herself, um, stealing herself, she looks back at him and reminds him that she could have him arrested right now. But Cyril looks down at her almost like lovingly, tenderly, and says, I want what you want. I sense it. I know it. Dedra shakes free from his grip and she calls Cyril out of his mind. She tells him that uh, she's already given him a second chance and that if he comes near her again, that she'll have him in a cage somewhere in the outer rim. Pushing past him, Dedra walks briskly towards the building while a jubilant smile creeps up on Cyril's face. By the way, I try not to plagiarize the uh, the descriptive audio, but the descriptive audio calls it a jubilant smile. Nice. Like that just adds to the whole creep back. <laughs> he just got his fix. He got his fix. He got his contact. He was in her presence. Like I get it. People have isms and fetishes and. And this is another from a certain point of view. He's in a relationship she knows nothing about. Look at the way his mother. Right. Well, yes. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I, I want to ask about this. Uh, it's rather bold that he actually stops her. Yeah. And I'm surprised. And her. I'm surprised that she didn't just have him arrested there, but I think like you just out creeped the creep, you know, and mm. she's so like, ah, she didn't yeah. know what to do. Yeah. Kim and I were talking about this moment and, and she had suggested something that I think is interesting. Maybe what are the chances in her language? Well, not just that, but we've talked about one of these characters potentially flipping at some point. I don't know if that's still true after the behaviors we've seen both of them exhibit in this episode. Right, 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 however, right. however, given Cyril's, can we call it, uh, determination to bring in Cassian mm -hmm. what are the chances that he either planted something or lifted something from her trench coat pocket mm. overstepping his boundaries to get more information that he needs to go after Cassian right maybe at this point you can't put it past him I'm not going to rule it out no. I think it's a long shot but I also think oh it's a very interesting idea that Code he knows there. what's that a code cylinder would be kind of only the yeah sort of no exactly she exactly might have with you know any kind of usable right but from his point of view like think if he brought her casting andor 
Yeah. What would that do for his position with her? Well, we know from here, I bring you a present. There's a marketing that shows uh, Cyril is going back to Ferrex. If you haven't seen that yet, it's out there. It's not, it's not like leaked stuff. It's, yeah. it's official images of him uh, back on Ferrex. Yeah. All right. Well, arriving at her office, Dedra finds a very excited uh, attendant here who tells her they've just picked up a rebel pilot. And this is what I was talking about. In this instance, rebel is not capitalized. Hmm. So that's pretty interesting. She asks if it's someone from their list. And uh, he says, no, it was a random. But uh, whoever they were, uh, they were using a stolen imperial masking unit. I presume that that's just some like, you know, some way to cover your transponder code or just make you look like. Make it look like you were the. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're, I'm somebody else. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. an older code, but it checks out. <laughs> Technology well, to uh, make it like you were before. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Dedra asks if the unit is one of theirs. And I presume that that means one of the stolen pieces of gear on the list that she got from Bix. And uh, here it says they're checking on it. She then asks where the pilot is, uh, is being held. And here it tells her that it's on a star. He's on a star destroyer near Steergard. Dedra instructs him to uh, get Dr. Gorst and send him out there immediately. But here has used his initiative and has already dispatched the doctor. He then asks Dedra if she wants to go. And she initially says yes, but then quickly changes her mind and says that she'll interrogate the pilot remotely. Well, back at the Chandrillan Embassy residence, uh, Tay Colma sits with Mon Mothma and tells her uh, that having been over her accounts uh, that she's asked him to oversee, he wished that she had called him sooner. Sheepishly, Mon says it was so much easier in the beginning. And uh, Tay goes on to tell Mon that if they're going to make any further donations, they need to be sure that the work that she's already done isn't going to come back to haunt her. Mon asks, they can't all be hidden? And Tay reminds her that there is a 400,000 credit withdrawal that is a bit of a problem because it shows up on the ledger and then it vanishes. He tells her it needs to be papered over. And she asks how. Tay tells her that the easiest way would be to make a deposit in the full amount. But Mon says that if she had that much money laying around, she would never have bothered to bring him in in the first place. Mon asks, how much trouble she's in. And Tay says, well, there's no trouble unless those newly appointed Imperial auditors scan the accounts. But Mon already knows that an audit is coming and she says as much. He nods his head. Yes. As he tells her that time is not unlimited. Mon realizes that in order to cover over this, she needs a loan. And Tay having thought it through, calls it a certain type of loan. He tells her that they need a Chandrillan banker that has connections to the treasury and what he calls a book of business that is incomprehensibly large. She looks cross as she says, and you have someone in mind. Tay tells her, well, it's not a long list. And it's as if Mon knows what's coming next because she, um, she accuses Tay of being afraid to say who it is, but it is what it is. And Tay tells her it's someone by the name of Davo Skulden. Now Davo Skulden, that's another new name showing up here for the first time. By the way, couldn't find an applicable reference for either Davo or Skulden mm-hmm. when you break them apart. So nothing, uh, this is new. Mon's voice trembles as she says, he's not a banker. She calls him a thug. And uh, Tay says, but he's the wealthiest thug of them all. 
And Mon hisses at him. Don't you, don't tell me you've spoken to him already. But Tay leans forward to look at her and he says, I wanted to bring you a solution. Fearfully, she asks if Tay has told this Davo what she's doing. And Tay reassures her that he's only told him how she's feeling constricted by the new tax laws. He says it's common enough, but Mon asks, what will he think about a senator that's missing 400,000 credits? And Tay tells her matter of factly that he think, uh, he, he'll think that she's just like everyone else he does business with, that she wants what's hers. Mon asks Tay at what cost? And he tells her that he's not sure but that uh, Davos Skulden wants to meet with her and he says he wants to meet her here. Mm-hmm. And I think it's implied that he means at the end, em- uh, the embassy residence. Right. Mon laughs as she gets up and says, you must be joking. And Tay says that he did push back on the request, but, and his voice trails off. Tay stands up and lets out a sigh and says to Mon, I could keep looking. But the look on Mon Mothma's face suggests that she already knows they really are out of options. Um, last week, I don't know, Hank, you probably didn't pick up on this. Last week, I posited that the uh, Chandril and Toast that they uttered, do you remember the word? I don't know what it was. There was a specific word they spoke. It was a toast. Mm. It may have had uh, its roots in the real world as a uh, specific uh, type of Italian wine, a, a specific Chianti. Mm. I also posited that given the Chandril and fashion sense that we've seen thus far may uh, make Chandrilla the Italy of Star Wars. Mm. And now we're about to meet with a loan shark. Does that mm-hmm. not scream Italian mob? <laughs> yep. sorry i couldn't help it i mean just after all that <laughs> nice. at the central office major partagaz chairs a special meeting attended by just supervisors miro and legret and their attendants he remarks that the detention of the rebel pilot was just a routine customs inspection here it confirms that it was totally random supervisor legret inquires if it was just the pilot detained and Dedra remarks that he was the only one on board, while Major Partagaz remarks that there were no witnesses. Dedra says, that's the beauty of it. Elaborating on her comment, she explains that the rebel ship flashed an Imperial profile for a moment and then vanished. The Star Destroyer that intercepted him thought it was odd and gave chase. Legret asks if there was any chance the pilot radioed home before he was picked up, but Dedra says that he swears he didn't. That, in fact, he thought he'd get away. Major Partagaz asks if this was a Dr. Gorst interview. And Dedra says it was. She says her level of confidence in the interview is high, adding that uh, Dr. Gorst got the pilot talking immediately. Just then, the meeting room doors open, and Supervisor Young rushes in with one of his attendants. At the same time, Heert mentions that the masking device used by the rebel was one of the items stolen from the naval the naval yard at Lozash a year earlier. That's another new name, by the way. Like mm-hmm. I said, this episode is full of new names. Mm-hmm. Major Partagaz calls it incredible. Supervisor Young apologizes for being late, saying that he was off-site. And the major informs him that they have a rebel pilot in custody and that uh, one and he's one of Anto Krieger's group. He goes on to explain that they don't think Krieger knows that he's missing yet and that the pilot has told them there is a raid planned on the power station at Spellhouse, 
this is the same uh, operation that uh, Luthen and Saw spoke of last episode. Mm-hmm. That he could use some air support for. Yeah. Well, and now maybe that air support will uh, will come anyway. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Young asks where he was headed uh, when he was picked up, and Dedra tells him that he was on his way to Kafreen. Young deduces that uh, they will count him as missing soon, a point uh, Major Partigas concurs with. He says they don't want Anto Grieger getting spooked, but either way, if they keep the pilot or let him go, that's exactly what would happen. Well, Legret suggests that they destroy the ship and make it look like an accident, but Young counters that there was too much at stake, and if he were Krieger, he would be suspicious of that. The Major Partigas then remarks that they want Krieger moving forward. Then Dedra comes up with an idea. She asks what would happen if they fouled the ship, made it look like an accident or something mechanical, and let the pilot be found dead in the cockpit. Young suggests that if they found the ship, they would tow it to Kafreen. Dedra thinks that if they move quickly enough and they set the stage properly by letting the rebel ship drift into traffic, it would lead them to Krieger. Major Partigas tells her to act on it and make it a top priority. He tells her to do it quickly and carefully and leave no trace before complimenting her with excellent work. As Dedra and Heert leave the meeting room, the Major announces to Legret and Young that he wants to meet with military intelligence immediately about Spellhouse. And without taking his meaning, the two men just nod at him affirmatively until finally the major says, let's go, prompting them to get up and do their job, which I thought was kind of funny. All right. Anybody uh, watched uh, Rogue One again recently? No. Well, Uh, um, for those of you who have, for sure. What's that, Hank? Since the show started, for sure, I have. So then you would be brutally aware that Kafreen is the mining colony where we first meet Cassian Andor, where he uh, ends up murdering that that poor guy. The Ring of Kafreen, also uh, referred to just as Kafreen, it is a uh, mining colony and deep space trading post. So there you go. Another uh, Rogue One connection. On Narkina 5, Cassian wheels a full rack of completed spokes into a passageway and then pulls out an empty cart. Taking the cart back to uh, table 5, we can see that Ulof is groaning as uh, he shakes his hand. Jembok moves to let Cassian back into his station, and the men work to assemble another piece. Ulof can't even hold a tool at this point, and when the buzzer goes off, he winces as he clutches at his face. Once again, the voice of God announces inmates on program and then directs the low yield tables to take position. Kino shouts out uh, that table two has taken the shift by six racks and three or uh, 45 total units, if you like, while table one will take the box. There is a square area of the floor in the center of the room that is slightly off color from the rest of it. This box is just big enough to hold seven men standing. Men can be heard groaning at the announcement, and Kino says, come on, let's get this done. By now, Olaf is barely able to stand, and he just stares straight ahead with his mouth hanging open. Zal tries to get his attention, but he's barely responsive. Jembok whispers, can he stand? And Cassian says, yeah, as Olaf seems to come around. But then... A second buzzer sounds, and the on-program command is given again, and Olaf drops in place. Cassian barely catches him, 
and Zal quickly moves to help hold him up while Jembok moves to cover them with his body. Zal uses his own body to sandwich Ulof against the workstation and assumes the on-program position, but is quickly knocked forward as Ulof begins to have what looks like a seizure. Zal does his best to hold Ulof up while Cassian reaches over and encourages him, look at me. Ulof stops convulsing almost immediately and, and nods before leaning on the workstation again. So Cassian assumes the on-program position just as the men from table one are shocked. Zal watches the event unfold while the rest of his teammates all avert their eyes. But Kino has spotted something amiss at table five and keeps his gaze on them. Now at the shift change, Cassian and Melchi carry Ulof across the sky bridge. As Kino passes them, Cassian implores him, he needs to see a doctor. But Kino just grunts at them to get Ulof to his cell. Finally, Ulof collapses. Even with the support of the two other men, he just can't go any further. And uh, Kino shouts at the men to keep moving as he rushes back to check on Ulof. Cassian and Melshi prop Ulof up against the side of the covered bridge. Kino calls out to the other shift supervisor, Zinska, and tells him to get a med tech. Then, crouching down with Ulof and Cassian, he orders Melshi, get going. As Cassian supports uh, Ulof's head, Kino caresses his face and gently tells him, hang in there. You've only got a few shifts left. Out on the factory floor, an Imperial guard with insulated boots escorts a barefooted inmate with a medical kit through room 5-2. The inmate wears the same white prison uniform, except the striping on his is blue. The men of 5-2-N all stand on program as they move toward the sky bridge. Interestingly enough, um, they call for a med tech, but when you go into the credits and you see who's playing the role, the role is actually credited as being a doctor. This character is actually a doctor. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, in fact, his name is Dr. Rashi, uh, Rashiv, Rashiv, Dr. Rashiv is played by actor, uh, Adrian Rollins. He has over a hundred acting credits, but to us, uh, North Americans is probably most notable as uh, Harry Potter's father, James, uh, throughout the Harry Potter franchise. Nice. Mostly in flashbacks, so it might be a, a, a tough one to pull out. But yeah, mm-hmm. Harry Potter's dad plays Dr. Rashiv. Well, the door opens and both Cassian and Kino are sitting with Ulof as he rests against the angled wall of the bridge. Seeing uh, Rashiv enter the bridge, Kino tries to comfort Ulof, telling him, here he comes, Uli. He'll have you back in your cell in no time. Cassian gets up to move out of the man's way, and uh, the man drops his kit and begins opening it. Recognizing the man, Kino says, haven't seen you for a while. And uh, uninterested, Rasiv says, ain't gone nowhere. As he begins to rummage through his kit, he removes an oxygen mask and tells Kino to hold it in place over the man's mouth and nose. And Kino says, his name's Ulof, and the doctor says, I've seen him before. Kino tells the doctor, he's only got 40 shifts left. And the doctor removes a scanning tool resembling a laser thermometer and begins to scan Ulof's forehead. I just want to, I'm going to start to get into this, the conversation I want to have about Kino and Ulof, because I think that their relationship is way deeper than we've ever been sort of uh, uh, let in on. Kino's the shift supervisor. Mm -hmm. Ulof's supposed to be out in 40 days. Yep. But. Here's the thing. Kino knows the doctor, 
but Kino doesn't know that the doctor knows Olaf. Hmm. How long has Olaf been there? Quite a while. Well, Kino didn't just walk in and become the shift supervisor. No, he had to go through some paces to get there. So, you know, is it possible that Olaf may at one time have been the shift supervisor and just aged out of it? Maybe it's possible. Keep that in mind when you think about how tender Kino is with Olaf um, in the last episode and especially in this episode. And imagine that Olaf is the person that took Kino under his wing and showed him the ropes. Hmm. It paints a whole different sort yeah. of. It's, it's more likely that he sees, I mean, not more likely, but it's likely that he sees himself yep. in Olaf in terms of his shortness like he's short too but he's not as short as this guy and, and and in the weirdest way if if he can see this guy go through the finish line it's proof positive that he's about to as well yeah it could be the uh you know a little stockholm syndrome too you start to uh, i guess the lima syndrome you start to care for your prisoners mm, true i just thought it was interesting that you know the who knows who here mm-hmm. yeah it kind of makes you go oh wait wait you know him but you don't know that you know him mm-hmm. that's interesting right all right well kino says that he just wants to get him up and about and calls him tough as an old rock and without a word the doctor goes back to his kit and removes a pen light and he uses it to examine one of Olaf's eyes the doctor calls out look at me brother but cassian reminds him that his name is Olaf. It's the same courtesy that was afforded to Cassian by Melshi mm-hmm. on Cassian's first day, even though it's, uh, uh, um, it's not, Keith, yeah. Keith Girga. His name is Keith. Callously, the doctor says, I don't want to know his name. And Kino looks at him disdainfully and repeats, he's got 40 shifts left. And uh, they just want to get him something, uh, want something to get him through the next few days and get him back on his feet. And uh, replacing the pen light in his kit, Rashiv says, well, that's not an option. And Cassian and Kino both remark at the same time, what? And Kino adds, you can't save him? And Rashiv tells him there's nothing to save because uh, Olaf has had a massive stroke as he takes the oxygen mask from Kino's hand and removes it from Olaf's face. And uh, Kino looks completely stunned at the revelation Replacing the oxygen mask in his kit, Rashiv removes an injection device and opens it. Now, up until this point, uh, despite knowing one another, neither man, neither Kino nor Rashiv, have actually made eye contact with each other. They've not looked at each other. No. But when Kino asks him, what are you doing? The doctor glares at him as he says, I can't help him. I can't help anyone. He then turns to the guard and he calls for a bag and a trolley. And the guard says it's coming. Loading two ampules of some kind of medication into the injector, Rashiv calls Olaf lucky and says that he'll pass peacefully, which is more than he can say for the rest of them. Kino looks genuinely distraught at this while Rashiv adds another week like this and you'll be begging for what he's getting. Standing over top of the three men with his arms folded, Cassian cocks his head as he asks, what do you mean? And dismissively, the doctor says, you heard me, and then instructs Kino and Cassian to hold Olaf's shoulders and legs. When Cassian kneels down to hold Olaf, he looks at the doctor and asks him, what happened on level two? 
His eyes widen at the question before he leans in closer to Kino and he tells him, you want to keep your men in line. And Kino looks even more troubled at Rashiv's words. The doctor tells the two to hold Olaf, saying he'll feel nothing. And then he injects the two medications into his arm. Olaf's eyes and mouth open slightly as he begins to convulse. He takes one final breath and exhales hard as his body goes limp and his head rolls to one side. Rashiv looks on morosely at the dead man before remarking, he's passed. Kino, who is doing everything he can to contain his emotions, glowers as he asks through gritted teeth, what do you mean, keep my men in line? What happened down on two? Rashiv looks at him wide-eyed before prompting the guard. He goes and asks the guard again to go and get him a, a bag and a trolley. Um, says that they made a mistake, that um, <laughs> the Imperials made a mistake. A man was released from level four, but turned up on level two the very next day. Mm. When word of that spread out among the two shifts, the Imperials killed them all, both shifts. Just then the guard, the guard asks Rashiv if he still needs Kino and Cassian to help him. And he says, they're just leaving. The guard punctuates the sentiment adding now, but before they get up, Kino questions, uh, if he was released and Rashiv retorts, you heard me. Cassian still holding Yulof's feet looks at Rashiv and says, no one is getting out. Are they? His answer is grim as he says, not now, not after this. And he adds, at least your friend is free. The guard, not impressed with the delay, orders Cassian and Kino on program as he strides down the corridor, activating his uh, shock rod for motivation, leaving Yulof lying there on the floor. Both men adopt the on-program position and head towards the factory floor. And as they walk, Cassian asks Kino again, how many guards are on each level? And having had a personal revelation, Kino answers, never more than 12. And we yeah. cut to black. That is the end of our episode. Um, lots going on here. I'm going to go as fast as I can through this. I want to start with Kino. When I say, again, I really think that he did believe in the system right up until Ulof died. Um, that if you kept your head down and you did your job, you'd earn your freedom. 100%. With, uh, with uh, Kino's count at 217 and Ulof's at 40, respectively, for sure, Ulof was there long before Kino was brought in. How else could the doctor and Kino know each other? And yet Kino didn't know that Rashiv had seen Ulof as a patient. Uh, we saw last episode when Ulof started to show symptoms that Kino was a little bit kinder, a little gentler with him. And I thought it was just because of Ulof's age, but I now wonder what the dynamic was like on 5-2-D when Kino arrived. Do we think that Ulof may have had, in fact, been the floor manager at one time and has aged out of the job? Is this why Kino is softer with him? We've already talked about that. Um, the word from the doctor, they made a mistake. Rashiv says they've made a mistake. And when Cassian suggests that no one's getting out, he says, not now. Do you guys actually think that anybody was actually getting released that when their, when their time was up, that they were set free prior to the new legislation? I'm maybe I'm with you on that one. Yeah. I don't know. I do. I they, suspect you yeah, go ahead. I mean, Hank. I, yeah, I get the feeling they got caught in a mistake. Like they didn't separate, they didn't wait enough time for to General put them back in. To sure, sure. Back in the system, you know. Another thing strikes me as true is that if this is machinery for the for the war machine, yep, 
yeah, the maximum amount of time realistically that these guys have been here is 12 years. That's true. I wonder if anybody was in the system prior to the reformation of the Republic right, into the, right. into was the empire public facility before. Yeah. I mean, there is every possibility that it was. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing about getting out, um, getting out, uh, I do believe that they were getting out. And when the new legislation came along that changed. And the reason I say that now is a bit of a stretch. However, um, Prior to the PORD legislation, you think you'd have a, a fairly good influx of fresh, fresh labor. Mm-hmm. Sure. Suddenly sure. the, the port legislation comes along, which is supposed to be a deterrent. And look at Cassian's sentence. This used to be six months, <sighs> six years. And they did say they, they doubled existing sentences on the spot. That's right. So if, right. if the new legislation, which is public knowledge, is actually working, then the crime rate has gone down and you have a dramatic decrease in the incoming labor force. Mm. The biggest mistake they made was by reintroducing that prisoner into the same freaking building. Right. They have seven buildings on that floor. I did the right. math on this and this is, what do you do? Rotate them to another building or you put stupidly rigid parole conditions on anybody that makes it really easy to rearrest them. And so when you do rearrest them, you still introduce them to another building. And you got to think though, that if nobody had said a word, like if they just went, Oh, Tony's back. uh, That's scary for everybody, but there must've been some kind of insurrection. There must've been some kind of a hundred man outcry. So what uh, Aquino says, there's no more than 12 guards on any level at one time. Uh, Mm -hmm. 12 guards, 50 inmates. Well, if it's both shifts, though, those are, I like those odds. That's what I mean to both shifts makes uh, sorry. Both shifts makes a hundred men, 12 guards. Yeah. Yeah. Not good for them. You know, listen to uh, like Cassie and say, all they got to do is turn the floor off twice a day. You know, if, if they are listening, uh, they certainly aren't thinking uh, escape attempt. They're probably they're The guards are probably more complacent than the prisoners. Oh, probably. You have seven floors of seven rooms over seven buildings. That means there are 343 permutations of where you could recycle an inmate into the workforce or 294 permutations. If you do the obvious and you don't put them back into the same freaking building, which would effectively uh, reduce the spread of information because the sign language is only effective in the same building. Right, right. The mistake was they put that doctor can go building to building. I doubt that. That's another question. What does a doctor have to do to be incarcerated in Star Wars? (laughs) Work off his debt. Somebody like Yvazin, who's doing illegal (laughs) body modification, really certainly needed to be incarcerated. Right, right. right. So the mistake was they reintroduced that guy in the same building. If they'd have left him out, put him back Mm -hmm. into another building under the I violated my parole or any other, it might have been containable. Yeah, I mean, different building. You don't even have to make up excuses. Not it really, seems no. like it's full things. It's it's. I think that they they don't get out there now because of the new legislation. They're revolving. Yeah, and it was a genuine mistake. We revolved the guy to the wrong building. You know, uh, when they brought Cassian in, and Cassian was so keen on like, okay, this they're wearing the boots, and then they're they've noticed that 
when he was privy to the conversation about the guy, their short staff down there, I came as soon as I could. Like this all adds up to, you know, before I said I wasn't sure if there was going to be a prison break so much as he was going to get plucked out by the ISB. I'm right. fully back on board. There's going to be a prison break. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And well, yeah, go ahead. The Green mile connection. Yeah. Yeah. When the power goes off. <laughs> it's because there's a power draw frying that, that uh, level two. That's right. Shift workers. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. It was. Uh, so uh, episode nine, nobody's listening. Clearly people are listening. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's nobody else than just us. <laughs> I'm listening. Yeah, they're listening on both sides. With three more to go. Yep. 10, 11, 12, um, in the corner, I just 10, said 11, that. 12. So, uh, the next episode is the third episode of this three episode arc right. with uh, episodes 11 and 12 the episodes, 11 and 12 serving as our two part finale. Um, man, I feel like we are, we are building to a, a fervored pitch. Um, and I do think that we are going to get the whiz bang star Wars, uh, going into this last arc. Mm-hmm. We've seen space battles in the trailers with that, that yeah. ship with the, 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 the saber Luthen's right. uh, Fondor uh, craft. Right. So we're, we're heading someplace for sure. I mentioned this before, canonically speaking, you know, what else was done, built at Fondor? No. The executor. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or will be built at Fondor. Yeah. Interesting. Well, listen, guys, um, this has been a uh, rocky uh, version of oh, yeah. uh, our little you show here. Crazy like, right you know, now. You're going, chop, 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 chop. Uh, we're about to cut again. I'm sure we are. Yeah. Listen, if we cut again, thanks for hanging out with us. Catch us again next week when we're back for uh, episode 10, whatever that one's going to be called. Um, and as we go into the finale here, we hope you're uh, with us. But uh, until then, for Fandom Power, guys, my name is Wes. I'm Andrew. He's Hank, who can probably not hear a damn thing that's being said. And we will be back next time. Bye for now. Again, I don't know if I'm on live here by myself, but that was a heck of an episode. Uh I can't wait to see what happens in the next one. Uh, we're, we're rounding the corner here. We're getting towards the end and uh, something spectacular is about to happen. We're going to probably get some crazy prison heist. I think Keenan Loy is now on board. Um, and we don't see him in any other Star Wars. So uh, is he going to make it? Is he going to sacrifice himself for the uh, fellas that move forward? I guess only time will tell. Um, if you're still out there and you're still listening, Uh, I'm Hank (laughs) uh, for Fandom Power, Uh, and uh, maybe the guys will be back if you're patient. They may have fixed the audio. I may be talking to you, and you may not be able to hear me. Um, Got a Sam Witwier action figure. Uh, A from uh, a couple episodes ago. And I guess that's uh, that's us, folks. I gotta have to bow out. I got about two percent left of my phone. Uh, thanks, and uh, may the force be with you. I'm gonna try and get through this again. Oh, you're still there. I was I'm gonna still try going. and get through. I, I'm gonna I was try like and get signing through this out. Again. I was like, oh, thanks oh, from, from Hank and the boys from Fandom Power. I don't even know if you can hear me. <laughs>
Oh, I so appreciate Here's this. Here's Sam Whitwear. I was showing them Sam Whitwear. <laughs> Wait for it, because when it comes to editing this thing, it's going to look hilarious. Um, it's going to be but awesome. Yeah.